your feelings, his thoughts, his feelings. I'm giving you unprecedented access. He's my legal guardian. He's protecting me. No, he's over-medicating you. Can you swim? No! I will not be able to see you anymore. You can't do that, Gene. Yes, I can. I have to say to myself five times a day, I love you. Does it work? I don't know. Sometimes I wish I had somebody else to say it to. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that sank Paragon Records. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my little surfer girl, <laughs> Joe Reed. Chris File, God only knows what I'd be without you. Um, Didn't even think think of calling you my little surfer girl when we were recording this on Barbenheimer weekend. This is true. This is we're true. We're coming to you from a joyful time in the recent past. Uh, it was literally in an oasis of just bad news because like the literally to set the stage listeners, um, I saw Oppenheimer and Barbie both in the same day. I saw Oppenheimer in the morning and then I saw Barbie in the afternoon. And so I text our little group chat with Chris and Katie, uh, heading into Oppenheimer, you know, signing off or whatever. And then I come out to texts of like, Joe's coming out to bad news, man. <laughs> and and it was that Challengers had been pushed to April and also, also Problemista. Um, Problemista had been indefinitely delayed. And so it literally was just like the like tremendous like my wonderful day of movies. And then in the middle of it was just like, oh God, this like depressing news that had like bad implications for going forward. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, there is some silver lining of opti- optimism that the, the entire rest of the film year won't be nothing, won't be a barren wasteland of anything. And then, on top of all of this, the first, the literal first trailer that I get before Barbie is what? Challengers. And so <laughs> I'm literally just like, oh, no, it's so Can I tell so you the first trailer I got at Barbie? We got an uh, a, 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 like, full bizarre trailer package in front of Barbie. The first trailer I had in front of Barbie was Priscilla. Me too. Oh, Weird, right? Very I mean, like, weird. I didn't get I Priscilla think, at all. I think but people are being smart and they know that there is a there's wide an age range. range of tastes. You did get a wide range. The other thing about seeing the Challengers trailer on the big screen is because when you watch a trailer on uh, Twitter or YouTube or whatever, you either don't get the um, MPAA warning screen or you like get it and it's on your small screen so you don't really pay attention but like when you see it on a big screen i always pay attention to what it's rated for and right. graphic nudity is one of the warnings for it's challenges. gonna be josh o'connor the man has it oh, basically yeah. in his contract at this point that he has to <laughs> hang pipe in all of his movies i'm just like could not be more excited for that movie could not be more bummed that i have to wait till april um sitting on pins and needles to see what's going to become of the rest of the fall schedule. Get your shit together, movie studios, for fuck's sake. Um, 
Anyway, we have a guest. <laughs> we have a guest, and I want to bring our guest in because our guest, I think, is about to make a really salient point. Uh, oh. Listeners, I'm sorry if my face was indicating theme. that I would. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, you know and love our new theme music that we love that Hell we are yeah. launching in time to our new Patreon as well. We will get into it. Uh, we have the composer of our new theme music. Our friend Taylor Cole is here. Yay! Hello! Thank you Welcome, so much for Taylor. having me. I am beyond stoked to be here. This is a true honor. One of my favorite people, one of my um, uh, reliable trivia buddies who um if as i'm as i tend to compile um trivia for our our periodic uh game nights and i come up with something that i think well that's just too insane i can't give that question to everybody (laughs) i'll just send it to taylor and i'll just be like i can't give this one to everybody but here i'm giving it to you and it's you will reliably uh either get it or like uh Make a real go of it before realizing it is in a (laughs) sphere of knowledge that is just completely separate from what I am. But uh, I I very much enjoy diving into those things. So thank you, Joe. I appreciate you, Taylor. Gary, we have family here today. Can't say enough how much I love the new theme music. We've we've gushed to you about this privately, but now we must do it publicly. It's so rad. It's so fun. Um, I'm so so glad you guys like it. And I don't know. I haven't heard this big episode 250 yet, but I, I, I must say for all the listeners that Chris and Joe were incredible collaborators on making this theme music. Like in terms of the feedback they would give on the drafts of it, it was some of the most helpful and specific musical feedback I've ever gotten, despite being from people who aren't, you know, necessarily musicians per se. Right. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed uh, being able to work with them uh, both on, on this whole endeavor. Uh, and it was, they made it much easier to uh, deliver the goods than maybe some other people could so thank you i talk a lot about being a gen x millennial cusper and normally i tend to fall personality wise towards the gen x side but like my most millennial trait is i'm so petrified of giving critical feedback ever 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 (laughs) so i always couch it and just like this is great oh my god this is so i have this one little thing it probably is stupid (laughs) i don't understand whatever i'm like so like you like you receiving like, the feedback in the manner that you in do the drafts that we went through. Well, that but that's the thing is like you being the kind of collaborator to receive feedback in a way that I feel comfortable giving it mm. is like an underrated aspect. There was that thing in the the uh, other two finale where um, Brooke is looking through her uh, through her phone or somewhere in the last season where she's looking through her phone trying to search for uh, proof that Lance texted publicists to help him and it's all just like i'm sorry to be a bitch but and just like (laughs) i know this is probably crazy but and it's just like that's that resonated i will say it's just like this idea of just like i'm probably being stupid totally disregard this is totally fine um so yeah like underrated collaborative aspect is to calm my neurotic ass about (laughs) offering feedback that way well but like first of all taylor thank you that's wonderful to hear we're glad that uh it was a wonderful process for you as it was for us but also like uh, part of the reason and i think uh listeners will be discovering this over the episode um if they have not listened to your show before that like part of the reason we asked you to do it is like you get it you get the show you know the vibe you understand and you are the vibe like yes 
Uh, I, I mean, I've been a, a listener since since day one, uh, truly, over the last five years. And this is one of my very favorite podcasts to listen to. Uh, Monday afternoons, when they generally drop, my, my day job is as a high school teacher. And it is my I do the film club at my school after school on Mondays. Uh, and then when film club ends, it is part of my week, weekly ritual to listen to this had Oscar buzz on my drive home after film club. So it is a, a, a wonderful part of my week. So I, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Uh, well, I was a little worried for a second that, like, you would subject Film Club to us because, like, we are maybe not children appropriate sometimes, uh, no, especially so when we're referencing uh, Josh O'Connor full frontal nudity. Um, In the first five minutes of the, yes. the episode. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm very excited for this episode. Very mm-hmm. excited for this movie that we talked about when I rewatched it this morning. I was like, I love this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, me too. Yeah. And it does seem because I I usually like to at least give a scan to the letterbox logs to see what like general perception of like people who might listen to the show uh, think of this movie. I think people are too tough on this movie. Hmm. Well, we'll definitely get into that. I want to do our uh, our Patreon plug before we get into the movie. Oh, of course. Itself. I was the other thing I was going to say though uh, uh, to heap a little bit more uh, praise on Taylor for a second is if you're already if you're maybe on the fence about joining the Patreon, you should know that like one of the reasons to subscribe is you'll be able to hear the Patreon specific theme song for uh, this had Oscar buzz turbulent brilliance, which is. Uh, uh, specific and new and super fun and funny. Taylor's and, version. Yeah, Taylor's yes. version. Exactly. This had Oscar Buzz parenthesis Taylor's version. Um, but Chris, let the listeners know why they should sign up for our Patreon. So, listeners, you know, last week we launched our Patreon. This had Oscar Buzz turbulent brilliance. You should go sign up if you have not already. We will have episodes waiting for you. There's only one tier. It's $5, and you will get two bonus episodes every month. Right now, we are planning on launching those on the 1st and 15th of every month. Uh, Do we say the 1st and the 15th, or do we say... If we haven't, it's what's going to be, so yes. Sure, that's what it is now. Exclusive Uh, news. (laughs) <laughs> we'll be doing, uh, this is the format for Turbulent Brilliance. One of those episodes will be doing what we're calling Exceptions, movies which fit the This Had Oscar Buzz mold of great expectations, disappointing results, and movies that got uh, an Oscar nomination at some point. The movies you've been wanting us to do for a while on the main show, we've been saving those for our Patreon for movies that did get an Oscar nomination somewhere. We're talking about movies like Nine. Our first up movie is Nine. Movies like Charlie's Wilson's War, The Lovely Bones, Across the Universe. Uh, so sign up for that. We'll put your name as a tomb in the middle of our house this week. Uh, <laughs> flipping it up from last week. And then the second bonus episode every month, we're going to be doing something a little bit more of a departure of the format, something a little bit more condensed of the type of topics we would normally talk about on the main episodes. It's going to be doing things like uh, checking in with the current Oscar race. We're going to be talking about actress roundtables exclusively. We might watch an old awards show and recap it on that episode. We might do an EW Fall preview on that episode. Uh, I wonder if this is following in line. If it if this one hasn't launched on the Patreon yet, one of the things we'll be talking about, I went to Magic Mike Live and it was a transcendent experience. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be talking about that on 
the Patreon. Uh, so sign up. Uh, we got lots going on there. We're going to be experimenting with the format, but we also want to hear from all of the people that are subscribing there and uh you know we want to hear what you want to hear and we will be you know uh providing for you whatever you want to hear uh once again go to patreon subscribe to this had oscar buzz turbulent brilliance it's patreon.com slash this had oscar buzz we're going to be doing patron-only polls where you can vote to determine upcoming episodes. We have not uh, signed up for Discord, but trust and believe we are investigating so that we can do it well and not do it poorly uh, when it launches. But go and sign up. Yes. Co-sign everything that Chris said. Uh, listen to that man. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't always sound like it, but I do. Uh, it's going to be fun. We we hope to uh, we hope to provide a, a fun and enriching experience. A bang for your five bucks every month. We we think it'll be more than worth it. So, um, see you on the Patreon. Or hear you on the Patreon. You'll hear us on the Patreon. Something, some direction of transactional. You'll hear us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Talking cinema Italiano. <laughs> yes, you sure will. Um, back to our guest. Though. Hello, hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, the topic that we return to with all of our uh, uh, first time guests is we want to know your Oscar origin story. We want to know how the Academy Awards, as a cultural object, came into your life. How do you feel about them? Are you as psychotic as us? Do you do you, you know uh, smile politely at us as we as we spin off into whatever? Uh, uh, where where does it come down for you, Taylor? Uh, all right, I'll try to give the short version of this story without going on too long. Uh, it begins when a friend's mom took me and my friend to a community theater production of the musical Chicago. Ooh. Uh, right around the time when the movie Chicago was sure. coming out. Uh, I enjoyed the production that I saw and then enjoyed the movie quite a bit. Had a grand old time with it. Uh, and then about a year or two, maybe later, uh, when I was in the eighth grade, we were doing like group presentations on aspects of the 1920s. That was sort of our social studies unit. And I wanted to show a clip from the movie Chicago as part of my presentation. And my teacher said no. And I was trying to figure out justifications as to why. And the fact that this movie had won some big award was the like my justification for being like, oh, we could we, we this is culture. This is valuable. Uh, this is valuable cinema. And, and that ended up working. Uh, the very next year uh, was the 2003 year Lord of the Rings Return of the King, uh, mm -hmm. which I was very much into Lord of the Rings at the time. Those movies came out when I was in, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. I was primed to just go deep on all the the lore and the excitingness of it. The DVD special features were like the first time I was really like learned about how movies were made and the idea right. that like there were people behind all the different aspects and and categories and and contributions to the the art form. And of course, when that movie wins everything it was this sort of like validation of my taste like oh of course the oscars always pick the best thing and they're <laughs> always going to pick the thing that is my favorite and it's this great uh giant gold statues to validate my tastes uh and who then, wouldn't want that exactly and so they're gonna pick uh, they're going to pick 
the best thing being everything about that thing except cinematography. Yes, but but the only at that point the only other best picture nominee I had even seen of those five was Master and Commander, which wins cinematography, a movie right. I also loved. So uh, it was <laughs> it was all just confirmation bias for me that year, uh, and really set a nasty precedent for <laughs> for everything. Yeah, that would be going Crash forward. was lurking only two years yeah. later. For well, you that was the that. thing. Two two years later, uh, I uh, with uh, a different friend went to go see Good Night and Good Luck uh, and loved that movie. That was easily my favorite movie I had seen that year. Uh, And that's a movie that gets a bunch of nominations. And then when it wins nothing, that was my first Oscar heartache and was Uh a real nice, you know, wake up call experience being like, oh, the thing I love isn't always going to (laughs) win everything. (laughs) That's Um, such a crucial part of it, though. And I feel like if you can stay on board after that part, that's when you know that, like, you're in, you're in. Because... (laughs) All of a sudden now it's the it's the agony of defeat along with the ecstasy of victory and 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 part of it was that same year of Good Night and Good Luck was the one play I was ever in in high school, a production of The Tempest. Uh, I invited the did you entire. Play the Tempest? Uh, I did not play The, the Tempest. I did not role. play the titular role. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I was Ferdinand, if anyone cares. Uh, but I invited the entire cast over to watch the Oscars that year. Uh, and my parents were like weirdly into this idea. They're like, Taylor's branching out his his social group, and yes, we're going to support this completely. Have them all over to our house. We'll pay for the pizza. <laughs> um, and that was the first like Oscar pool I ever did. Uh, nice. And the idea of like wanting to impress the other cast members. I wanted to like do my research and figure out what was likely to win. Uh, so that's where the same year that I you know had my first kind of heartache and disappointment was also the same year I really got into the sort of gamification of it all uh, and the idea of predicting and and you know kind of trying to read the tea leaves and being surprised by the surprises when they happen. So uh, really right. that kind of window of. 2003 to 2005 was when I was was all in and then it's just been a you know been a, a weirdo about it ever since. Uh we love weirdos about it. We are weirdos <laughs> about it. So uh uh one of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the best origin uh stories yeah, we've ever had. One. Thank you. It's that, yeah. that one's pretty good starting with class projects. Yes. literally like not even like i I knew that like they were a thing but the idea of them like having meaning or weight or significance was purely out of i want to show the all that jazz sequence as part of a presentation to my social studies class the uh, the combination (laughs) of class project community theater and gambling is like that's a pretty uh fantastic what more could one ask for what more could you ask for (laughs) in an oscar origin story thank you taylor um yeah, fantastic, Chris. Um, you had started to talk about Love and Mercy, and I and I uh, well, president, I was just bus- to set president the business here just jumped set the in. Stage. With, yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you were setting. Get the, stage. the movie Continue mentioned the before 20 minutes into the episode. Yes. Very uh, good. We're here talking Love and Mercy. Yeah, uh, Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson biopic. Like Ish? yes, but no. Right. By like. This is one of my one of the things about like I think a lot of what I was seeing when I was just purveying people's perceptions of this movie is they were all just like eh, biopic, but like I think it slightly it's, does something a little different. 
And that's why I love this movie is that it's, you know, in the last 16 years, we've had two significant spoofs of the musical biopic genre, meaning like the, Mm -hmm. the tropes and the bad decisions and the repetitive decisions you can make are all so, uh, you know, kind of ingrained to the point where they're worthy of parody. And Love and Mercy is one where I I watch it and I'm like, oh, this is making kind of all the right decisions. There's so many moments where like you can feel the walk hard, the Dewey Cox story version of how this movie could go. Mm -hmm. uh, And then it does something totally different in ways that I find just totally fascinating. Like uh, essentially the reason I picked this movie mostly is because uh, I'm Not There does have that one Best Supporting Actress nomination. Uh, For me, I'm Not There is the like gold standard of sure. movies about musicians in terms of like it really right. makes you know so many of those Todd Haynes movies he's like nope you can't do it because we got the the <laughs> the elements are just too good even if the mm. academy is not going to understand it on a best picture level yeah mm-hmm. uh by by two uh parody movies you mean walk hard and bohemian rhapsody right those are the two, <laughs> of course uh, of course of course <laughs> parodies of musical yes, uh, yes, biographies yes. Uh, i mean I, I was all in on weird the al yankovic story never has there been a movie more made for my sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> Weird Al being the it. artist I've seen the most times live. <laughs> that got so many Emmy nominations. I was so sort of uh, uh, happy about that. Oh, yeah. because You know what? Good for the Roku channel. Yeah. Well, I, but like if these movies are going to get punted to, you know, streaming in a way where like I Roku channel or not like this weird the weird al movie is something that i would have been able to see in a theater 10 years ago and it's a bummer mm-hmm. that i can't right now and but if that's going to happen mm-hmm. at least like give them their due somewhere and well, i'm glad daniel radcliffe got nominated because oh, yeah. he's well you I were it too if you did get to see it Elvis. in a theater right well i did because okay. i'm a you know right. a festival <laughs> asshole but you know um <laughs> most people didn't yes I would argue that Elvis is a little, there's such a self-awareness about that movie that like, even though it ultimately drifts fully towards conventional biopic, Mm -hmm. like there's elements of Elvis that I think are borderline musical biopic spoof. Yeah, but they're they're all in the first 40 minutes of of Elvis. Well, to the point where... Almost every Baz Luhrmann movie goes so far to an extreme that you could say it borders on parody of whatever it's doing. Like yeah. Moulin Rouge is that, and and Romeo and Juliet is that, and like it's just uh, that's Baz being Baz <laughs> to some right. uh, to some extent. Uh, who I love, by the way, uh, will never say an unkind word about Baz mm-hmm. Luhrmann, even uh, when discussing. Um, his totally not having a facelift uh, at, no, at, at any all. point in his recent <laughs> career. Um, it's, it's funny you bring up Elvis because my sort of the a general rule for me is when it comes to biopics or his movies about real people or events in general, but particularly with with things that you would classify as a biopic, is that I tend to like these the less time that they cover. Yeah. Uh, meaning the mm-hmm. more compressed yeah. the timeline. So for me, the part of Elvis I kind of vibed with the most was that central section on do, in the in the middle, the kind of 45 minutes on doing the comeback special. Sure, and sure, and yeah. to me, I'm sure. like, yeah. again, there's a version of Elvis that is just a 90 minute movie about him putting on the comeback special. And I yeah. maybe like that more than the movie we got. But for Agreed. Love and Mercy, you kind of do that twice. Uh, I love that it, mm-hmm. it, it, it structurally it sticks to these right. kind of two very kind of compressed few year periods of time. Um, but yeah. it kind of weaves between them so wonderfully. I will say about Elvis before we get off of the topic of Elvis, just because I know, that this, oh. you know, it's it, we can't do 20 minutes on Elvis. But the 
the thing that I even like about the beginning part of that movie is it even condenses the like rags to riches sort of like it this the mm-hmm, the part mm-hmm. where he gets famous gets taken care of in about seven minutes of screen time and he sells it so well where it's just sort of like, but even that is just like the, you know, the part where the girl starts screaming for him and whatever. He's just like, he's very economical about getting that part, um, getting to that point in Elvis's career. And I just think it's, uh, you have Elvis board games before the 30 minute mark. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Anyway. Yes. Chris continuing. Um, I think the thing about love and mercy is like the, like Taylor was saying, the super conventional version of this movie is so apparent, like kind of at any point to the movie's favor, because like, you know, the version of this movie where it's like Brian Wilson is played by the same actor and they mm-hmm. age him up or age him down mm-hmm. throughout mm-hmm. and they thread these stories much more linearly or, you know, it, it, in ways like that. But I think what's interesting about this and I think what is really uh, almost moving about the way the movie is structured is in the like pet sounds beach boys era you have paul dano playing it it has a very different visual style and he's clearly the protagonist of that and everybody else has a circle around him and it's getting very much inside of his psychology and inside of his brain and his experience of that time but then when you have the late 80s early 90s portion brian wilson isn't the protagonist of yeah, that story right the, Melinda, Melinda is the protagonist is, yes. of that story because, yeah. like, Brian Wilson's life is so taken over by Paul Giamatti's character that, like, he's not even the head of his own story at that point anymore in the mm-hmm. literal sense as he was living his life. And I think that that's just a really smart way to structure the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's a subtle thing, but I think it's the thing that kind of keeps it from being this standard biopic. Right. But and, also gets at the subject in a much more interesting way. And in your sort of your your raise and your walk the lines, you have the, you know, section of the movie where they're really sort of, you know, bottomed out on drugs and bottom out on their career. And then, in you know, these movies, either the person dies tragically or the last like three minutes of the movie are some element of recovery and redemption. And yeah. the whole Elizabeth Banks section of this movie, that period of Brian Wilson's life in a conventional biopic is maybe the last five minutes is like. Like yeah. meeting Melinda and then coming out. But it's like, but it, to me, like, it's such an underserved section in this kind of very stereotypical arc for these music biopics that we're just going to, you know, drill down on something and, and really mm-hmm. give it some more space and find the the characters and the peaks and valleys that exist in that even small period of time. It's, 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 to me, that is the unique element of this movie that makes it stand out so much. Well, and you can imagine studio notes for uh, a different movie that that turned out differently, where mm-hmm. they're like, y- you know, you don't want to linger too much on the more modern day stuff because that's not the stuff that people remember, and that's not the stuff that people want to see in a Brian Wilson biopic. And you can imagine a movie where, like, we don't really see things like the dissolution of his first marriage, and we mm-hmm. don't see, like, he mentions. He mentions Dennis Wilson's death, but he but we don't get to see that play out. We don't get to see, you know, how that affected Brian, even though you would imagine that that was like an incredibly dramatic and and yeah. harrowing portion of his life. And you can imagine a less sort of savvy studio exec being like, you know, you're throwing drama, you know, out the window here and you're <laughs> passing up all these opportunities. But you're right in that like that kind of more conventional biopic 
you really are going through the motions. It's not like everybody's story is the same, but in those movies, everybody's story feels the same, right? It's the same sort of rise and fall and bottom out. And even a movie that I like, like um, Rocket Man, which tries to flourish its way through that as much as possible, Mm -hmm. still follows that very sort of familiar arc, Mm -hmm. and it limits my enjoyment of the movie, I think, a little bit. So. And for me, like the music biopic is a movie that is a genre that is something that there's not a ton of them that I really, really love, but I have yeah. been consistently fascinated by them because there are these mm-hmm. sort of established arcs and tropes and character beats and and types of pieces of, you know, dialogue. Like there's there's the one in Love and Mercy near the beginning where he literally he's like floating in the pool and he's like. I'm going to make the greatest album of all time. Right. And then right. at that point, you're like, oh, is this going to be a different type of movie than it is? Like, that is the one sort of cliche that, like, maybe didn't make it out of the right. original script. Because there's there's two credited writers on this. It's Oren Moverman and Michael Allen Lerner. Michael Allen Lerner wrote the sort of original draft of this nearly a decade before it gets made. Has a different right. title, Heroes and Villains. Uh, Bill Polad scraps that draft completely and then brings in Oren Moverman. I imagine, based on his work with Todd Haynes for I'm Not There. Like, to me, right. there's a, a real mm-hmm. lovely connection Well, and Moverman was, was intended to, I think for a while, intended to direct the movie because huh? Bill Polat is more of a producer than right. a director. He had only directed one movie previous to this. He's only directed one since. It premiered at Venice, I want to say, last year with mm-hmm. the, the Casey Affleck movie. Yeah. That it's is supposed to come theaters, out as, the year. The, as this episode is dropping. And right. like, uh, I haven't even seen a trailer for it. What's it's it called? It's something Dream and something. Dream and Wild. Dream and Wild. I, I didn't know this is, movie yeah. existed until no. I was like doing extra mm-hmm. research for this episode. So it was right. not an on purpose, oh, let's time out the Love and Mercy episode with the release of Dream and Wild. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but I think it's, it's, and so, uh, from what I had read that uh, Oren Moverman was essentially like to Bill Polad, like you seem to have a more concrete idea of what you want this to be. Why don't you direct it? And it doesn't sound like it was like you direct it then. It doesn't sound like it was, you know, uh, contentious or anything like that, but mm-hmm. you, you, um, you sort of wonder what the creative process was between these two uh, Oren Moverman who had directed the Messenger mm-hmm. and Rampart and there was one other one that I uh, had remembered. Time but anyway. Out of Mind, the oh, yeah. Richard Yes, Gere. that's right. Mm-hmm. That well, I I've... only know because it played the one tiff and I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> right, 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 um, right, right. I did watch the uh, Blu-ray commentary on Love and Mercy yesterday, oh, which is fantastic. Bill Polad and Oren Moverman. And they seem very congenial and collaborative and complimentary of one another's uh, contributions. So nice. it, it does feel like it was a positive partnership and not contentious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The cool. I'm Not There uh, uh, connection is interesting, too, because there was either a draft or in conceiving of this movie, there was a version that had at least a sequence of the uh, Brian Wilson lives in bed for years. Yeah, Philip right. Seymour uh, Hoffman, that... I think, what they wanted to play that version of Brian. Right, right. Ooh. Well, and they had wanted to make a a Brian Wilson biopic as far back as like the late 80s, where it was supposed to star William Hurt and Richard Dreyfus. Now, by that point... Has half the, the action Eugene of this Landy movie even stuff, happened yet by that point? <laughs> well, I was going to say the Eugene Landy stuff hadn't really even fully played out yet. And mm-hmm. yet I'm like, 
Richard Dreyfuss would have been really good casting for that role as we get it now. I don't Mm -hmm. know how that role would have been conceived back in 1988, but like Richard Dreyfuss as the sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, untrustworthy, uh, manipulative shrink like bob rumson mode yeah i was gonna say it's his what about bob character but like more manipulative and more uh (laughs) dr leo marvin dr leo marvin is keeping brian wilson uh captive for for years i could see it oh i I, when i said bob rumson i was thinking american president oh bob rumson i thought you i who what's bob's name and what about bob bob wiley bob wiley I've seen yeah. What About Bob eight yes, billion Bob times. Um, for movies starring two absolute monsters on set, um, I fucking love What About Bob. That's Poor how Julie Haggerty. Murray is. Richard Dreyfus comes across better in the What About Bob stories than Bill Murray. Well, we talked, a, we talked about it. Remember when we did our Mermaids episode and we talked about how Frank Oz sort of keeps backing into these like awful on-set situations? <laughs> and like that was definitely one of them where it was just like poor Frank Oz on the set of, of What About Bob dealing with Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus, who not only are like in and of themselves miserable personalities, but hated each other specifically. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Maybe it would have been worse if they didn't. Maybe it would have been worse if they had like teamed up against... <laughs> Frank Oz, but um, that that is her reminder. Frank Oz has been in some real disastrous situations. Yes, there's mermaids, Mm -hmm. there's Stepford Wives. Yes, yes, and none of it seems to be his fault, really, or like Mm -hmm. none of it seems to be him being like a a bad actor. He's like sometimes makes ill-conceived decisions but nothing seems to be like from a place of malice he just sort of seems to to at least that's my conception i don't know maybe frank oz is you know pulling wings off of flies and something i don't know um (laughs) i do think losing that middle version of brian wilson is way more effective to have just these like bifurcated two halves yeah that like Mm -hmm. What he has gone through has made him a completely different person for the audience mm-hmm. in a literal sense. Is like, it may seem like an obvious choice, but I think this movie pulls it off really elegant. Ele- eloquent. Eloquence. Eloquence. <laughs> because I cannot talk today. Eloquence. Uh, um, in a really elegant way. I. Um, and this is yeah. perhaps a. a maybe too on the nose moment in the movie, but I love it. Nonetheless, it's the, the scene during the pet sounds recording sessions where the one bass player, she's asking, you know, Brian, how does this work musically? You've got two bass lines going in two yeah. different keys. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's sort of the movie itself. It's two melodies in two different keys, but sort of yeah. playing simultaneously. Yeah. Paul Dano is so, we'll get to this on the other side of the plot description but like we got to talk about how well i'm just not even gonna say anything about paul dano until we're on the other side okay all right all right good call good call myself in good call um let's do the plot description we are uh uh, well into this episode so um taylor as our guest you are charged with doing the 60 second plot description for love and mercy are you ready i am indeed i practiced this and it was under 60 seconds but uh we'll see how it goes for real All right, then your 60-second plot description of Love and Mercy starts now. After a montage of the Beach Boys' early days, we meet Brian Wilson, played by Paul Dano, in the mid-60s, beginning a more experimental production on the album Pet Sounds. His father's trepidatious about the musical direction Brian is taking, but he makes the album anyway. When Pet Sounds flops commercially, Brian is urged towards more towards the band's earlier style, as mental illness becomes the driving force in his musical production and personal life. LSD enters the picture, and Brian briefly rebounds with good vibrations, but can't complete his next album, collapsing into his more pronounced auditory hallucinations and personal disconnect. In 1985, we meet Cadillac Sales, 
salesperson Melinda Ledbetter, who discovers a potential client is an older Brian Wilson, now played by John Cusack, now receiving round the crack the treatment for schizoaffective disorder by Dr. Eugene Landy. Brian and Melinda strike up a romance, but Melinda struggles to ever be alone with Brian, learning the true degree of Jean's control, abuse, and exploitation. Once deciding she can't be a part of Brian's life anymore, Melinda collaborates with Brian's housekeeper to take out a restraining order against Jean and take Jean out of Brian's will. Years later, a liberated, reconciled Brian finds Melinda on the street, and the two reconnect, eventually marrying. These different eras in Brian's life are intercut with each other in a sort of call and response editing style, juxtaposing thematically connected moments, leading us to the obligatory text at the end about what happened to everyone afterwards. Boom. With literally one second to go. Damn. Well done, Taylor. <laughs> well done. You, you have achieved what Joe and I can never achieve, <laughs> oh, never. which is to the entire plot of a movie in 60 seconds. Well, part, Chris, part of me we was like, did this movie jump has to two the... plots. Should I get more than 60 seconds? And then I, I kind of <laughs> thought to myself, I'm like, wait a second. So I went back and I listened to uh, the beginning of your Cloud Atlas episode. And I'm like, Chris did not take extra time for six plot lines. So I can do, I can do two. <laughs> I probably ultimately did take extra time to explain that movie. In our wow. tribute to um, a unconventional uh, plot structure, we also did the plot description before the boilerplate information for the movie. So, oh, um, sure, we could we could uh, lay that out. We'll, too we'll move into the A major section of the plot description. I've blocked all of this out clearly because I was charged with doing the 60 second plot description <laughs> of that movie. Yes. <laughs> that was also like super early. That was like episode 75 or something. Yeah, it was the, yeah, your listener's choice. So we should probably say Love and Mercy, directed by Bill Polad, uh, written by Oren Moverman and Michael oh, yeah, Lerner, as Taylor said, starring John Cusack, Paul Dano, Elizabeth Banks, Paul Giamatti, Bill Camp, uh, a few other people I do want to shout out a little bit later in this podcast, but we'll get to it, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2014. It opened limited the following June, June 5th, 2015, and uh, didn't... It had... Kind of a modest, I would say, uh, landing. Early summer movie. It was like June. Yeah. Classic early summer movie, which like had a little bit of a splash and then other things splashed. I feel like that was a big summer 2015. I remember being like a big like summer of box office stories where like Jurassic World happened and everybody was Mm -hmm. like, well, we're now back like into Jurassic Park is now, you know, a big thing. That was the year where like Universal had like six of the top 10 movies of the year or something Mm. like that. That Yeah, Furious 7 is that year. Straight out of Compton was later that summer and like that Mm. was such a huge story and and yada yada yada. Trainwreck was like a hundred million dollar movie solely off of Amy Schumer. Yeah. Um all right, I want to. S- I feel like we should start with Paul Dano, though, Chris. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna cede the floor. To okay, the, so the I Paul Dano stand has entered saying. the chat. Yes, <laughs> yes, the Paul Dano stand uh, is uh, taking the throne. Um, Paul Dano. This year with the Fablemans, I was like, oh my god, they Belfasted the dude, and I didn't even think at the time. They've done it to him twice. <laughs> they did it to him for this. Granted, he wasn't Globe nominated for Fablemans. And for this, he wasn't SAG nominated. So yeah. it's like, it's not like he was ev- truly everywhere. But like, the man can't catch a break. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, I think this is also the moment that like, 
my Paul Dano standum kind of activated in that, like, this is a great actor who people don't treat like he's a great actor. And I understand people's reservations for him, at least up to this point, because even things like, you know, prisoners, like... Prison, honey. I understand people that are like, that's a bad performance. I disagree, but I get it. Even going back to Little Miss Sunshine, where, like, Little Miss Sunshine was a movie that had a lot of success and then a lot of detractors. And I think you saw it when Alan Arkin died recently, where there was this, like, kind of a wave of reappreciation for his performance in Little Miss Sunshine because for so many years, partly because he beat Eddie Murphy for the Oscar, and Eddie Murphy has so many fans, um, but... A lot of people kind of denigrated that performance more than they should have. And and I think a lot of elements of Little Miss Sunshine sort of suffer that fate because it was a movie that people thought sort of achieved beyond what it should have. I'm a huge Little Miss Sunshine fan, but I think Paul Dano, especially in that movie, because his character is so you could say gimmicky, you know what I mean? Where he's like, he's the character who doesn't speak. And then all of a sudden he has the big blowout um, uh, on the side of the road. And I think Paul Dano then gets sort of caught with that stray and he kind of suffers for that. I think there were people I remember at the, there will be blood thing where Mm -hmm. if there was one element that like super huge fanboys of there will be blood would admit to being waffling on it was the Paul and Eli Sunday uh, part of the aspect of that movie, even though I think I'm much more – I have complicated feelings about There Will Be Blood in general, but I think he's great in that movie. Yeah. He, I, that's the thing. People are like, he's too big. He's too, it's too huge and broad. And I'm like, he's that's, going face to face with Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, what are you talking what about? Are you talking what about? are you talking and about? Like, I mean, and that character, the Eli in particular, like, that's what he has to be. He's like a, you know, revivalist preacher. Like, that's yes. sort of the whole The point. final scene of the movie when he shows up and yeah. he's so smarmy and, for lack of a better word, fake, it's like, yes, yeah. this is perfect. Mm-hmm. This is exactly who this person has been the whole time well and if and if what's his name what is daniel day lewis's name in that movie daniel daniel plainview thank you if daniel plainview is supposed to be the like the crass ugly face of capitalism in in the history of america then eli is the crass ugly face of religion in the history of america Mm -hmm. and like both they're two sides of the same coin and yeah i think he's great in that movie i think he really uh delivers um but yeah he's in he's in this interesting mix of like small movie big movie mm-hmm. throughout mm-hmm. his career right where it's like taking he's in a ton woodstock. of movies that no one has ever seen <laughs> right he's in like he's in taking woodstock he's in meek's cutoff he's in is he her husband in meek's cutoff is he michelle williams's husband in meek's cutoff I don't remember. I need to see that movie again. Yeah, I haven't seen it since the um, He's in Cowboys and Aliens, though. He's in um, uh, Looper and uh, 12 Years a Slave. And you mentioned Prisoners, and you're right. Like People were really kind of like, he was uh, a lot in Prisoners. He's I sort get of, that that's a movie people don't like, but... It's the prequel I, to his role in The Batman, though. <laughs> I was going to say, I have seen the, the same Batman. people dog on his prisoner's performance and then say that he's incredible in the Batman. And yeah. I'm like, it's basically the yeah, same thing. It is. It is. Um, it's I just had more really, words. Yeah. Like, 
I think I had really come around on him, if not already, but certainly Ruby Sparks, uh, which was also uh, um, directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who directed uh, Little Miss Sunshine, but it was written by... Is it just Zoe Kazan or is it Dano and Zoe Kazan together? I think it's just Zoe it's Kazan. Just Kazan. I think it's just uh, Kazan. Yeah. Yeah, um, his partner. But it's the it's a movie that kind of got brushed aside. It's one of those movies that got criticized for the thing it was sending up. Yeah. Um, at least by people who hadn't seen it. People sort of assumed that it was this movie about this manic pixie dream girl movie. And it's like, no, it's a movie criticizing yeah. <laughs> that yeah. uh, that very concept. Um and he has a really interesting uh, role where he has to play this protagonist who ultimately, like, you can't sympathize with because he's too uh, selfish. But he also can't be so cartoonishly monstrous. And it's like it's a it's a deceptively difficult thing. And I think he and Zoe both pull it off in that movie quite well. I think it's a really underrated movie. And. Um, so by the time Love and Mercy comes along, I'm pretty, I'm pretty Dano positive, I think, in that, uh, in that way. And he's had, since then, he's only ever played really interesting roles. Really, yeah. like, he hasn't played a conventional mm-hmm. role since Love and Mercy, which I think is really interesting. Um, I, I can't wait to revisit Swiss Army Man in the wake of Everything Everywhere all at once. He's great in that movie. Yeah. I mean, he is. He and Radcliffe are both phenomenal. Um, I mean, when and that that's movie, a movie that, that I movie... like, all the play- praises heaped on Radcliffe, Dano feels like he's, like, brushed aside in terms of conversations yeah, about that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah very that true. That movie that fully drives itself off a cliff in the last 10 minutes. Of I want to watch it again for that, for that reason to see uh, how I feel about that, because I remember being very positive on that movie back then. Um, and a lot of people were not, um, but like Okja is totally fucking weird. Obviously you mentioned Mm -hmm. the Batman. Um, He's so hot in Okja. (laughs) Everybody's so hot in Okja Mm -hmm. because fucking Stephen Young is, is snacky as heck in, uh, in Okja. Even Tilda with her braces. Listen, we love it. We love (laughs) Tilda with her braces is a genre in and of itself. Right. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal uh, is literally hot in Okja because he's sweating for the entire yes. every scene that he's in. Hundred percent, Is Paul Dano in the Mickey Seventeen cast? What am I imagining that? I don't think he I is. Hope daydreaming so. that. I thought somebody from Okja besides Tilda was in that movie. Maybe. So excited for that. Movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very excited for that movie. Um, he's in. A movie coming soon called Spaceman that uh, oh, that's puts the him... Adam Sandler movie about like the Eastern European basketball player. Is that like a Sandler Sandler movie, or is that like a Sandler's actually acting movie? I think it's like in the same sort of behind the scenes people who did like Hustle. I want to say it's okay. more in the yeah. Hustle vein because it's basketball related at least. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But like, it's a good cast. It's Dano and and Carrie Mulligan, and of course Isabella Rossellini settling into her playing characters kindly grandmothers uh i am assuming kindly uh maybe she's a maybe she's a, a randy grandmother who knows it's a sandler movie um she's not a kindly grandmother in every in everything she is jennifer lawrence's enemy in commerce that is true but that was still a while ago but yes that's a, that's a, that's <laughs> a decade that's a decade old at this point chris isn't that terrifying that is true. um no but i was when joy isabella, is timeless what are you talking about? when isabella rossellini's voice hap, uh, comes up in the problemista trailer where i'm like oh my god we've we've settled into our 
Isabella Rossellini is just going to narrate things. She's their new Morgan Freeman. And I'm so... <laughs> it started with Green Porno, her show. Yes, uh, was it I was going to say. And then... About bugs fucking? Like... And then um, she doesn't narrate Marcel the Shell, but she like her voice is so uh, resonant in that movie. Um, I love it. I'm so sad that we have to wait longer for Problemista too. Fucking fix it, Hollywood assholes. Um, (laughs) Where else are we? Oh, we should also mention that he uh, uh, Wildlife, which he directed in 2018, which uh, he that's the one where he and Zoe wrote that script together. Um, Yes. Uh, Oren Moverman, a producer on that movie as well. Uh, we got to do wildlife at some point soon, Chris. Um, boy, 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 it's a wildlife. It's a wildlife, boy. <laughs> um, uh, once again, a movie about wildfires called Wildlife. We'll get into it. <laughs> that you didn't realize was wildlife, not wildfire, until we were out of the theater seeing it. <laughs> we, well, this, we had- this, I think I told this story on the podcast, but I'll say it again. So that mm-hmm. was the first movie of that Toronto Film Festival. And it's, early in the morning and I maybe didn't get like super great night's sleep. And so I'm a little like, I'm like, you got to like settle into the rhythm of it. And it's early in the morning and the theater's dark and I've got my little notebook. And at the beginning of every movie, I sort of like write down uh, the movie. And then I also, Oh, that's the other thing is I had, God, this is so dumb. I had tweeted before the movie started, like first movie of TIFF wildlife send phone off into the movie and then in the movie i'm like it's like he's off to fight wildfires wildfires are really becoming a metaphor for this movie something something wildfires something something wildfires and i'm like is this movie called wildfire and not wildlife and i tweeted wildlife and i'm gonna look like an idiot and like i'm trying to like look at my notebook where i wrote down the title and of course it's dark and so i'm literally like chris you're probably sitting next to me watching me going like with right in front of my eyes and of course i can't see it um obsessing about the dumbest possible thing is did i write did i type the wrong title on Twitter. And of course, no, I get out of there and it's wildlife because sure. Because mm-hmm. boy, 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 it's wildlife. Anyway, but you, you did I, not I think it was it. The, the film adaptation of the ABC Family original series, Wildfire. I didn't. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. Who was in that one? Uh, I never watched an episode. I just okay. remember seeing ads for it in 2005. Fantastic. But yeah, Danos uh, really just has risen and risen and risen in my estimation. I'm excited for dumb money mostly because it's him. Like, um, I, I, I like the idea of Paul Dano doing a bit. Yes. Yeah. Which is the appeal of this movie. Aside from like when he was a teenager in like the girl next door, has he ever done a really broad comedy? Like broad, broad comedy. I can't um, think of, like, I feel like he could, like, nail it in a way that, like, people love to, you know, ride for Philip Seymour Hoffman and Along Came Polly. Like, I want to yeah. see the example I was about I to just see, say. I want to see, Paul like, Dano show up in a movie and do something like that. Yeah. Paul Dano show up in a movie and shit himself. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, we've now, we've now demanded it, so mm-hmm. now it needs to uh, actually happen. Maybe he'll do it in Dumb Money. He plays a YouTuber. It's there you conceivable. go. It's conceivable. <laughs> um... He's so good. The other thing about him in Love and Mercy is, and this was pointed out a lot in the initial reviews, he looks so much mm-hmm. like Brian Wilson. Yeah. And I wonder if there was ever 
a conversation, maybe not because uh, uh, Polet and, and Moverman seem to be really on the same page about this, but I wonder if they ever got a note from above being like, why not just have Paul Dano play him in throughout the movie? Yeah. Because he seems so perfectly cast, and I do think he is better than Cusack. I don't think Cusack's bad in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, but I think Dano I think definitely outshines him. good in this yeah. movie. Um, but he's just perfect he really should have gotten that oscar nomination watching this a second time now i'm like he's mm-hmm. he's really tremendous the only thing is i might be tempted you know i have that weird thing about mm-hmm. like bifurcated movies where somebody is a lead but they're only in I half the movie like the he was on my lead actor ballot this year i was like okay so if paul dano's not the lead who is the yeah, lead right. elizabeth banks mm-hmm. right like to me, I feel like that was probably one of those things we bitch about on the internet, but behind the scenes, it's a contract thing. Yeah. Sure, where, yes, like, probably John so. Cusack is contracted to be considered probably the lead so. of this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, like, well, because this is because John Cusack is number one on the call sheet. Right. He has to be campaigned as a lead. Probably like, so. The yes. big thing I remember from this year, 2015, is like kind of the big theme of chatter at the time was like this is a legendarily weak lead acting year and between like dano running supporting and like michael keaton for spotlight running supporting like i wonder could both of them have gotten in in lead and maybe bump out you know an eddie redmayne or somebody like that yeah Yeah. yes that's certainly in terms of like what deserved to have happened yes Mm -hmm. um supporting actor in 2015 was straight up cuckoo bananas though like that was a real weird year for like a bunch of different reasons like it's not even just one way that it's weird it's weird in like four different ways one of them being that paul dano and michael shannon for 99 homes show up in almost almost every lineup yeah and yet they're both uh ultimately snubbed stallone doesn't show up in every lineup, but shows up in One enough of them. One of the most them. disliked people in Hollywood. Well, that's the thing. He had both this great narrative, this great story, mm-hmm. which you know the Oscars love. But on the flip side of that, he had made so many people personally sort of angry at him that it was sort of... And that was the story people always said about Eddie Murphy, too, about why Eddie Murphy didn't win, is that like he was an asshole to too many people, <laughs> um, and people just didn't like him, and who knows you know, the extent to which any of these things are true. Um, but Rylance was sort of the like quiet stalking horse, where movie people didn't quite know how much... Uh, how big of an awards magnet he was from the theater... Because he was just sort of this, like, new presence in movies. He had been in movies, of course, but, like, mm-hmm. he wasn't as well-known unless you were well-versed in the theater. And he sort of just showed up on every lineup and, like, event didn't win anything until the last possible second and then wins. Um, and then you get your your Ruffalo and your... Tom Hardy, who sort of ride in late on the basis of being in the two big frontrunner films. Um, I like both of them in both of those movies. I don't know if I would have nominate, nominated either one of them. Um, Ruffalo, because I think there are like three other people in his own movie who are better than him. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hardy, because I don't think I liked The Revenant enough to like stretch for a nomination for hardy um can we talk about like for two seconds i have a morbid curiosity to rewatch the revenant lately <laughs> honestly i kind of don't blame you plus <laughs> you're, you're i more... remember so little of it and i just mm. remember everyone hating it and me being like it's fine 
Like, You're more Inyari too friendly than most people, so I think you would probably benefit from a rewatch more mm-hmm. than most people as well. Um, although I liked Bardo more than I thought I was going to, so maybe I should also see it again. Bardo, a great movie. That was also the year where SAG nominates almost nobody from mm-hmm. the Oscar lineup. and Not almost nobody, I think nobody, except for... No, they don't nominate Stallone. No, they don't. That's why Idris Elba won. Idris, I think Rylance is maybe the only crossover. Mm-hmm. Now I want to look oh, at okay. it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had that up earlier, and then I restarted my computer, and I forgot to bring it up again. Hold on one second. Indie Spirit's also no crossover with the Oscars for yeah. supporting actor that year. Which is mm-hmm. odd for them mm-hmm. around that period of time, especially. Yeah. Um, hold on. SAG Award for... Ugh, God. Male I need someone to explain to me, like I'm five, <laughs> the new awards tab algo on IMDb that takes four fucking ever to find what you are looking for. <laughs> Everything is, we've said this eight billion times, but IMDb fucking figure shit out. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, okay. No, SAG was actually the first place where Christian Bale popped up in supporting because right. right. i think he was nominated as a lead in comedy at the globes so it's bale and rylance at sag but then it's idris elba for beast of no nation who had been nominated in a bunch of those different fields he wins michael shannon was nominated for every single thing for 99 homes a movie that i didn't think that many people saw that year um, but he was nominated all across the board and then SAG nominates this is just the Michael Shannon thing when he shows up uh, in precursors for yeah. <laughs> for movies he's not getting Oscar nominated mm-hmm. yeah. for it and then he'll when pop he in for Nocturnal Animals uh-huh. it's for like things he maybe got a uh, mention for somewhere and then Jacob Tremblay for Room is the fifth nominee at SAG mm-hmm. that year which is very SAG they, they tend yes. to they'll give you a Dakota Fanning and I Am Sam every <laughs> once in a while they'll give you a Jacob Tremblay in Room um, so Christian Bale shows up in lead for Big Short at the Globes, yes. and so does Carell for Carell. the Big Short for Globes. That is wild that both of them are leads uh, in in that movie, whereas Dano is supporting for Yug- Love and Mercy. Yes. If any movie has Ooh. no leads, I would say the Big it's Short the Big has Short, no yeah. leads because like it's so fragmented. Like mm-hmm. it's you know it's tough mm-hmm. to to say anybody if anybody it's maybe gosling for a while but like i don't know like i would say the same maybe for spotlight though i would probably call michael keaton the lead of that movie that's the thing certainly i don't think anybody would have made a fuss if you had called michael keaton lead and Mm. well the whole third act emotional payoff of that movie hinges on that character's (laughs) yeah arc you know yeah yes um yeah, Ruffalo, a lot of people didn't love in that movie. I liked him, but like, if I'm going to nominate a supporting actor from Spotlight, it's going to be either Tucci or yeah. Crudup. Crudup, even. I think Crudup is Schreiber. so fucking good. Yeah, Schreiber, Schreiber, too. Yeah, Schreiber's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Embarrassment of Riches. What a good mm-hmm. movie. Um, so, poor Paul Dano. Wait, at, 
at that point, oh, sorry, if you consider ahead, Dano a lead in Love and Mercy, then it, like, if this movie has more traction, then it, like, at that point, I would have liked the reality where people start, like, riding for Paul Giamatti and Bill Camp for Best Supporting Actor nominations, who Giamatti's I think are great. wonderful, oh. both of them in this movie, as sort of two different sides of a coin of a force in Brian's life through, through the two eras. Abusive father figure. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think this is there. I think there the the table is set for this to be Giamatti's year. I will say that um, this year you're talking for the holdovers. This this year we are currently residing. if the holdovers doesn't get pushed back to 2020. Have, have you both? I, I think it just came online yesterday. Seen the trailer for the holdovers? Yeah, yeah. The it's it's got the 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 Don LaFontaine voiceover to it. Well, obviously, Don <laughs> LaFontaine is not it's, with us. It's but very I have retro. I've heard that in a very long time. It's very I retro. I like that. <laughs> I, I, I squealed when the uh, voiceover. The focus features retro title yes. card that looks like old I Warner Brothers. Yeah. Um, even the fonts mm-hmm. are very retro. I, I'm really excited for that movie. And mm-hmm. I know that, like, Alexander Payne is a very complicated figure, and we're all going to have to grapple with that. But yeah. also, I'm excited for this movie. Um, I I run my own. No, obviously, all the respect to your Vulture movie fantasy league, but run my own fantasy movie league with like yes. twelve people. Yeah, sorry, uh, we like horned in on your action. I was in one of there, these, too. and I won it the year before the pandemic because okay. I drafted Parasite. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Holdovers is on my lineup for this year. So for nice. that reason alone, I'm hoping for good things for that movie. Nice. nice. Um, so yeah, we're, I'm, I'm sad that uh, that Dano doesn't get nominated for Love mm-hmm. and Mercy. Um, I mean, it, it, he doesn't get nominated for this, but I do also think the thing about the lead thing is the thing that always annoys the shit out of me, where it's like, well, we don't really consider you the lead of movies, so we're mm. going to consider you a supporting player. And this happens to both, to all genders with the Academy in things of like just the way that they are positioned in the industry. And yeah. I think it's so stupid. It has nothing to do with the films or the performances themselves and it's this nebulous thing of like do you think well, we don't part of it you a lead yet. do you think part of it is that because he was in movies from when he was a kid that people sort of still look at him as kind of a kid even when he's playing like steven spielberg's father you know what i, I mean? mean and he he's so baby-faced as it right. is and there right. is certainly a level of boy does he use that to his advantage in love and mercy though that baby-facedness oh, like yeah. the the way that he plays brian as not necessarily an innocent but the way that when he's creating music oh. he sort of seems so childlike and mm-hmm. so you know he... i mean those scenes where they're recording pet sounds in particular are yes. i think some of the most extraordinary things in any music biopic because i think it, it better showcases yeah. like the joy of a musician at work particularly when he's like not on stage i feel like so yes. often it's like the joy yes. of being on stage having the crowd screaming for you but in this small environment with nine people in a yeah, room yeah they never show can... him on stage in any in any part aside of from the movie. opening yeah, montage in like the montage well in the montages but i mean it's like there's, there's no like concert scene no, because really, yeah, he was, movie. I mean, the, the whole kind of thing of the movie is the rest of the band goes out on the road while he stays right. back to lay down all the instruments for a pet sound. I should say, I, I meant to bring this up at the beginning of the episode. Where What are all of our cultural associations with the Beach Boys in terms of like, uh, I'm fascinated to know with both of you guys and then I'll say mine. I am a recovering summer camp sleepaway counselor. Uh, okay. <laughs> 
man for several years. So the Beach Boys are part of your trauma. In, in, it, it, it kind of actually sort of the things I do enjoy about the memories of that era is that for whatever oh, reason, there was a few year period where you could, for any of the boys staff members, you could walk up to a group of them and just say, round, round, get around. And right, every, everyone else would be there to like do terrible improvised harmonies on I Get Around and then jump in to awful improvised acapella versions of that and Barbara Ann. Oh my Barbara god! Barbara Ann, we had to stop when the Minions did their banana version, and the kids oh, I were thought like, you were going to say when John Minions. McCain ruined that song for everybody oh, forever sure. on the 2008 <laughs> campaign trail. Yeah, um, but but for me, there is like I I for many years loved like as a kid grew up listening to the more kind of earlier beachy Beach Boys records. Just yeah. thought they were fun for running around outside, uh, but. This was kind of the movie that turned me around on Pet Sounds, like when I first discovered the internet, and I'm like, what are the greatest music albums of all time? Rolling Uh Stones has Pet Sounds number two. Uh, And I listened to Pet Sounds, I'm like, I don't know. This is kind of, I didn't, fully didn't get it. And I think after seeing this movie, I went back and listened to Pet Sounds and have such a deeper appreciation for it as a result, just because I think of the way this movie not only breaks down the process of it, but gives you some of like the alternate mixes of things where you're hearing, you know, different elements brought out more into the front because you're representing the recording of it. So I was definitely later to come to the, you know, the quote genius of Brian Wilson, but have always loved the quote fun Beach Boys uh, very much. Well, and that's one of the things that this movie gets into really well for as much as like Mike Love is a villain and we'll get into it. And for as much as uh, Bill Camp is the father is a villain in this, mm-hmm. um, there is voice being given to the idea that like pet sounds was such a departure from the beach boy sound and from what mm-hmm. people expected out of that. And like they, as much as any other band of that era or maybe ever had such a defined sound where like the it not even just the harmonies but the sort of just the overall vibe like mm-hmm. beach boys music sort of sounds like especially that like classic era beach boys music sounds like nothing else even though it fits into these genres of like surfer music or you know um or beach music but like it's such a it's such a singular thing with them and there is voice in the movie being given to the idea of, you know, you're making this record that sounds like a Brian Wilson record where where you are, but it's taking it away from, you know, what the rest of the band had been doing and had been doing pretty successfully. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite sort of little kind of Dano in the background moments is when... Uh, Murray, their dad, comes in with his new group, the Sunrays, and is playing that song. And he's like, yeah. "Oh, this guy sounds just like you, Brian." Like that, and that way that that comment hurts him so much because of everything mm-hmm. he's trying to achieve to sound differently is, is yeah. such a great Dana moment. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Where Where did you have the Beach Boys in your life? I mean, like childhood, it was all of that beachy music and none of the more you know experimental music that Brian Wilson had more of hand in. Yeah. Um, until literally that Rolling Stone uh, thing that you mentioned, Taylor. I had that Rolling Stone amazing top five hundred albums of all time issue, and like I that hit at the exact right time for me, where it's like I'm going and I'm listening to all of these albums that are on this list, you know, at a very very formative time, and that's you know when I was discovering things like Pet Sounds. And then also, uh, because as you will no doubt uh, uh, expect, I was in high school choir. And we did a like 15, 20 minute long 
Beach Boys medley oh, wow. that year after I had discovered like Pet Sounds and Brian Wilson Smile and um or maybe not Smile at that point but like we're doing it and it's all the beachy stuff and I'm like sure I'm not doing any of the good Beach where's Boys you still songs. believe in me <laughs> I know well that's the other thing is from a sort of modern perspective. And this is a thing that, like, you get into to some degree with the Beatles, although not quite in the same way. You definitely get more people being like, you know, McCartney Beatles is great. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of people try to to sort of um, separate that sort of, like, earlier sort of, like, I want to hold your hand Beatles from the more uh, later. Uh, and I definitely don't want to get into a Beatles discussion because that is quicksand. But um, <laughs> you get a little bit of that thing with the with the Beach Boys in the same way, where it's just like it's the early stuff that's like boppy, boppy, boppy. You know, I got a girl, da, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Um, but so, you know, so much different than the the uh, Pet Sounds stuff. I my dad was a big Beach Boys fan. We had a lot of like my when my dad had all his vinyl before he made the tragic decision to sell it at a yard sale. Um, had his whole vinyl collection and had a bunch of Beach Boys stuff. We would listen to this is the like this is the hokiest memory, and I swear to God that it's true. And we didn't like grow up in like a Norman Rockwell painting or anything. But every year when we would decorate the Christmas tree, uh my dad would put on the Beach Boys Christmas record. And so my favorite Beach Boys album. <laughs> it's got like Little St. Nick and the Man with All the Toys and all this sort of stuff. It's, and it's Mariah all- and the Beach Boys. The best albums are the Christmas and <laughs> Kelly Clarkson. For like, us, <laughs> for us, it's Mariah, the Beach Boys, and the and Johnny Seattle. Mathis Christmas album. Those are the three like holy trinity of Johnny Mathis was my mom's favorite and the Beach Boys was my dad's favorite. And then Mariah Carey sort of came on a little bit later. But we would be like decorating the Christmas tree, playing the Beach Boys Christmas record. My mom making us hot chocolate it's like it's the most idyllic thing that i can remember (laughs) um but my dad always would be like telling us the sort of like this is you know that's brian wilson he was this musical genius he spent a whole you know year in his bed and you know gave us the whole this is dennis wilson he drowned you know at a young age and and you know he got involved with charles manson and this, so like my dad was giving us sort of like the history of all of this as we would sort of grow up with the beatles so or with the beach boys rather um so we had a lot of and then through the years that sort of old style Beatles became cringy. I do. I don't not blame John Stamos for a lot of this. Like John Stamos <laughs> is not not responsible for like the Beach Boys being really cringy. Remember, like I watched all of Full House, and like they had like the he like had the Beach Boys on as guests, and he would always be like singing Beach Boy songs, and then he went on tour with them, and then like all this sort of stuff, and. At some point, all that like sort of old Beach Boy stuff just became sort of culturally cringy. At the same time that the later Beach Boy stuff, the Brian Wilson stuff, became even more culturally revered by the sort of tastemakers, which I think is a really interesting uh, juxtaposition. And maybe this is where we talk about Mike Love. <laughs> I'm the titular character. Yeah. I'm not going to shit on this one song because. I like this one song, but I do think we can blame a lot of this uh-huh. on Kokomo, Kokomo. Yep, because yeah. you take Kokomo <laughs> yes. out of the equation, and that I think remove that removes a lot of people's impulses to be snobby about. I think that's probably that true. Breed of Beach Boys song, which I guess means that Kokomo does a lot of damage. Just like anti-ABBA people get really like 
if they want to shit on ABBA, they shit on Fernando. Fernando's hmm. a good song, though. Fernando's a great yeah, song. both great But, songs. like, people yeah. who hate ABBA, yeah, sure, they sure, hate sure. ABBA well, the, because the of Fernando. The Kokomo-era Beach Boys song I stick up for is Sail on Sailor, which is a wonderful Beach Boys song that, like, should have the love that Kokomo has. Yeah. Well, we can blame Tom Cruise for the popularity of Kokomo because that was on the cocktail soundtrack. <laughs> um, but so, so Kokomo era, though, it does feel like the kind of like the Mike Love supremacy, right? Where like that was where he had, you know, taken the reins of the band. And like there's so much in terms of the the brian wilson story we that you get in love and mercy that you get around love and mercy this movie doesn't really get into the lawsuits that mike love brought against the band later on in terms of uh, getting his writer credits on the early stuff and him sort of uh and of course the movie comes out 2015 just before donald trump runs for president and sort of the last several years of mike love's uh life have been him growing ever more chummy with uh, donald trump playing at mar-a-lago playing for an inauguration thing yada 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 um where do we come down with his portrayal in the movie and also sort of him as a greater villain in this whole brian wilson story (laughs) it's it is to me i He's a much more, despite the fact that he's sort of, you know, the villain to Brian and and doesn't sort of understand what Brian is going through. But at the same time, like no one really at that time, even like mental health professionally fair to him. I I I totally agree. And I I think he and and Murray, Bill Camp, I think those two performances are much more kind of you can understand where they're coming from and sympathize them more so than like the Giamatti performance in the the yes. 80s section even though they're sort of yeah. filling similar roles in terms of their relationship to Brian but yeah. as as someone who like still likes that early beach boy stuff and had like under like myself had a hard time vibing with pet sounds the first few times i heard right. it like right. it is sort of he is this weird like he's mean and you want to feel for Brian but he does kind of have this sort of you know Killmonger was right uh, point of view to him. Well, the band was being (laughs) taken in a direction away from what he was good at. So you can understand where he was not Mm -hmm. loving that. No pun intended. Um, (laughs) The movie also doesn't get into the fact that, like, as Brian was getting into things like, you know, psychedelics and all this sort of stuff, like, Dennis was also going in that direction. And the movie doesn't really uh, explore that at all, which is fine. The Mm -hmm. movie is only doing a certain number of things. Um but it does sort of put Brian in the space of being like the, you know, head of the whole, you know, band, that kind of a thing. Um, but I do think the movie is good and smart about how working and living with someone in a mental state such as Brian's is yeah. not always easy. Sure. In a way that I also don't think is unfair to Brian either. Right. Right. Well, you, and it does that in both sides of the story. And, like, obviously, yeah. in the later story, you know, it's manipulated yeah. by uh, Landy. Um, but Well, and you see you these know, things where, like, they're right. in these sessions, and Brian is sort of geniusing out, and he's taking three hours to arrange a cello, you know, uh, interlude or whatever. <laughs> right, which ultimately, he's right, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it works. Um, but you also see, like, there's the one where he is, you know, 
ends up having to send all the session musicians home and like uh, blows five thousand dollars of their of their budget on that and is treating the rest of the band like when mike is like you're treating the rest of us sort of like your gadgets in you know your sort of uh i don't know if he he doesn't use the term wall of sound but it's interesting that brian talks about how phil specter yeah. is spying on him and trying <laughs> to assassinate him or whatever the hell he's a gangster which i also think is an interesting um uh, way to put it with phil specter because yeah um yeah <laughs> uh but you can see yeah you can definitely see where the rest of the band is being sort of sidelined for Brian's vision, which Brian's not doing that on purpose. Brian's sort of disappearing into his own head, you mm-hmm. know, essentially for a lot of this stuff. Um, if we, I think the thing we like about the the biopic structure in this movie is that it is so lean. If one casualty exists, I think it's his brothers. I think we don't get. And the fact that it is like uh, uh, Melinda's on the phone with Carl Mm -hmm. being like, you know, like, uh, you know, something has to be done. And like, you never see Carl as an adult. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that would have benefited the movie, but also could have detracted from the movie in terms of like taking it away from this lean structure that we really like. So I get why they didn't include it, but it did leave me wanting a little bit more of like, what did Carl and Dennis think about when this was all happening during this sort of Pet Sounds era? We get a little bit of them on the side, but mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, there's they're, they're, they're almost treated like they're just one character. There's nothing really right. different about either of them. Right. Although Dennis Wilson played by um Kenny Wormald. Kenny Wormald baby boy who was uh the the lead in the Footloose remake mm. and is a tremendous dancer was on the Jennifer Lopez uh reality show Dance Life mm. uh, uh on MTV back in the day and is such a good dancer. He was on he's, the. He's uh, also credited as the choreographer on Love and Mercy for the dances in the opening montage. Fantastic, sequence. fabulous. I love him. I genuinely love him. I've only seen him a few things. He was in the um, center stage sequel that was direct to Lifetime around the time of Footloose. And, Did not know that existed. Uh, yes, he's the lead in that. Um, and. Uh, I love him so much. Anyway, uh, he gets the lead in Footloose because Zac Efron and Chase Crawford both dropped out, which is, um, uh, I can see where Zac Efron would have been better for the movie. I maintain that Kenny Wormald is better than Chase Crawford would have been in a Footloose remake that I tend to stick up for. <laughs> I held less reverence for the original Footloose, which probably uh, helps me out there, but I liked the Footloose remake. Anyway, um, we should talk a little bit more about the other part of the the, the later yes. section yes. of the yes, movie yes. i feel the like second banks we're... of it all because cusack and banks are really good in this movie yeah. i know elizabeth banks is somebody that annoys a lot of the internet the worm has or... really turned on her in the last couple of years and i'm not hmm. sure not sure what the inciting incident was because by the by the time cocaine bear came out everybody was like oh elizabeth banks whatever and by the time Charlie's Angels yeah. came out. People were like, "Uh, Elizabeth Banks." Yeah, I don't and know. Man. She's like, she, I mean, I hate to use like understands the assignment type of thing, but like <laughs> in performances we like from her, mm-hmm. she really does get it. But like, this does feel the time where the time where she feels like she's most playing an arc. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we love her in small things like 
Magic Mike Double XL, where it's just like she's well, perfect. She's yeah. she shows up that. for ten minutes, yep. and she is exactly what the movie needs her yeah. to be. Yeah, and for for me, but... she will forever be Lindsay from Wet Hot American Summer, one of my very oh, favorite yeah. movies. <laughs> uh, yes. But I think, and and for me, there's always a little bit of that sort of like detached, just like one level removed from reality elements that she plays in that movie because it is this sort of broad comedy where everybody is slightly one level off from from reality but i think that that there's still that on her i think kind of explains her connection with brian a little bit more like it it makes them so great together like if she had the more sort of you know like i'm almost like like a sandra bullock-esque charisma i don't see her and brian connecting as characters i think it's a great piece of casting for for what i associate with banks and and i do love how she kind of is you know it's not until the last five minutes of the 80s 90s section that you get a scene without her in it like she is fully the protagonist and audience surrogate of of that whole chunk of the movie that Mm -hmm. scene where um she tricks uh Landy into coming to the dealership to harass her. Mm-hmm. She locks the office door. He Ooh. gets served with the uh, the lawsuit, and then she makes the decision ultimately to open the door to sort of face him down and sort of you know expose what a blowhard he is. That he's huffing and puffing at her door, and then when he opens, mm-hmm. she opens the door. He won't, you know, he cowers away. Um, Really good scene. She's mm-hmm. really good in that. That sort of without even having to say anything, she's just sort of staring him down. I really like that. There's something to I think the performance, but also just the positioning of this story through Melinda's point of view. That really I think not just like it feels different than a standard musical biopic, but it feels elevated from a lot of the things that we complain about with musical biopics. Mm-hmm. I think both how the character is portrayed, but also her performance keeps it from being the scare quotes, the wife character mm-hmm. or the woman character mm-hmm. that you that are just never as interesting as I think what she's doing in this movie in like other musical biopics. Mm-hmm. Um like her, her kind yeah, of separation like, as a character from Brian Wilson's past and her sort of like lack of that personal context of the character is such a like a more interesting kind of almost clear headed way to see into Brian's situation. Like if this mm-hmm, is, yeah. you know, walk the line like an older June Carter doesn't bring that same like new energy into a section in old Johnny Cash's life. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The- and I think. There's something about, like, this whole portion of the movie is about loving someone who has and continues to have, at this point in the story, mental health issues and, you know, figuring out where or if you fit in with that in your connection with this person. There's something about the story of this part of the movie that doesn't even need to be a musical biopic to be interesting like it doesn't need to be about brian wilson to hold our interest in like it has its own point and narrative ideas that like Mm -hmm. it could be fictional and we would still watch this i think it's and it's so it's i think it's wonderful that in whether or not this happened in real life who knows melinda was sort of the biggest real life uh collaborator in terms of someone who experienced this with the the writers and and polad but that their spark and their initial kind of chemistry and meet cute all takes place before she knows he's brian wilson Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 
We should also mention this is the same year that she makes her directorial debut, her feature directorial debut with Pitch Perfect 2, uh, a movie I didn't like but made pretty good money. Enough money mm-hmm. to do a Pitch made Perfect a 3. Shit ton it, of money. it beat yeah. Mad Max Fury Road at the box office. That's They're opening right. weekends together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I feel like maybe the Pitch Perfectness of it is why maybe people dog on her. People turned on like, Anna Kendrick for similar reasons mm-hmm. people just turned on pitch perfect and everyone associated mm-hmm. yeah pitch perfect it. is one of those movies that like i think if it had stayed one movie people would remember oh, yeah. it much much yeah. better i really liked the first pitch mm-hmm. perfect i didn't think i didn't see the third one at all i thought the second one i was like well i haven't know. seen the third What's we the all know we that haven't watched every episode of bumper in berlin one. We're not all caught up on on the Peacock original. <laughs> I am not. No, caught up. That cast is so. I will so stand up for cursed, Pitch Perfect though. Two because of Haley Steinfeld's presence and also that song I love, Flashlight. Flashlight. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> Haley Steinfeld is currently dating the Buffalo Bills quarterback, so I'm she's fam now. So she's uh, she's under my <laughs> wing of protection. Um, but you look at that. I like. I have no problem with Anna Kendrick. I have no problem with Britney Snow. As I was just said, Haley Steinfeld is fam. But you look at the rest of that cast, and it's. Uh, Rebel Wilson, Skylar Aston, Adam Devine, Ben Platt. It's like you could not get a collection of more people who I just, who just bug me. You know what I mean? It's just like they all just bug me for some reason or another. Um, Britney Snow innocent. Britney Snow innocent. Anna Camp innocent. Who is she? Wait, she's married to Skylar Aston though, right? She's guilty by association. Oh, wow. What did Anna Camp just do that we were like, Give Anna Camp more things. I don't know. I like Anna Camp. Britney Snow was just an ex, and she was the only tolerable thing about that movie. <laughs> yeah. Britney Snow is great in that Britney Snow innocent. And I hated everything well. else. Yeah. Uh, but that's sort of my thing is as Pitch Perfect goes along, is like you got away with it once with all those people who tend to mm-hmm. bother me. Like you can't keep going to that well. I'm sorry. Um, what else? Did we? Sorry. Am I the only one of the three of us who saw Cocaine Bear? I have not. I have seen not. Cocaine Bear. It's not good, but it is in in tandem with Oppenheimer. It is part of the Alden Ehrenreich comeback project, oh. and I'm very very happy with that. This is one of the reasons I'm excited for Oppenheimer because thus far the Alden Ehrenreich comeback project has underwhelmed, evaded you so mm-hmm. far. That's fine. He he I, he just deserves. He's bigger so and good in Cocaine Bear, a bad movie, and not. Wow. Not a bad, whatever. It's not a good movie. I, I did not hate the time that I spent watching Cocaine Bear, but like I can't in good conscience call it a good movie. But Alden <laughs> is very good and fun in that movie. Anyway. Um, He's never been bad. The other person I want to shout out uh, in terms of a collaborator in Love and Mercy is Atticus yes. Ross working without yeah. Trent Reznor for some mm-hmm. really great Brian Wilson-esque, but still very much its own thing, mm-hmm. original mm-hmm. score moments in this movie, yep. particularly when uh, when when Cusack and Banks like jump off the sailboat and come back to to do their little shower and hook up like just Ross's score on there is just so dreamy and wonderful and and perfect for that section of the movie and the way he's yeah. also pulling if if you watch till the end of the credits of Love and Mercy for some of like the soundscapes that he designs to sort of like mm-hmm. the moments to get you in Brian's head they list like every single Beach Boys and Brian Wilson track that even has like a microsecond of time in it so it's just a giant like a wow. massive laundry list in the credits of lists of Beach Boys music that goes into each one of those <laughs> soundscapes. It's incredible. 
That's incredible. For like the Oscars that are constantly nominating, you know, because of music design and sound design uh, and like blending in with score, pre-existing music, and then like whatever mm-hmm. soundscape the movie has. Oscars love nominating musical biopics and musicals mm-hmm. in uh, like sound mixing now just sound and it's like this is the one that really kind of deserves it the soundscape in this movie is incredible i think it does a lot to not only sell the beach boys music you mentioned the atticus ross stuff um that it you know is all kind of blending into this thing but serves so well Mm -hmm. to get us into brian wilson's headspace and psychology in in a way that doesn't you don't get the full experience of it at home, but I remember seeing this in the theater and being like, the sound design of this movie is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The one thing I read about Atticus Ross recently that kind of blew me away is like sort of famously Nine Inch Nails is a band with only one permanent member, Trent Reznor. But apparently Atticus Ross now is like an official permanent member of Nine Inch Nails. Like, is yeah. the only other permanent member of Nine Inch Nails, which like I had absolutely no idea about. And, like, I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, well, Chris has been them. talking uh, things that have you know covered. You know, Oscars love nominating music, films, and biopics in sound. So, in the musical biopic vein, I do have a game prepared for the two of you, <gasps> yes! as I am wont yes! to do. Awesome, awesome. Uh, the so name of this too. game is The Song, Not the Singer. Mildly inspired by your beloved alter egos and gently reworked from a long-ago Patreon bonus episode of the Great American Pop Culture Quiz Show, this game asks you to identify music biopics from given clues. Nice. On your turn, your first clue will take the form Blank Sings Blank. The first blank is the name of a different character played by the star of a particular music biopic. The second blank is a song sung by the subject of that musical biopic. You name the movie in question. For example, if I said Django Freeman sings Georgia on my mind, you'd know that that movie was... Ray. Ray Ray is correct. You understand the format. Guessing correctly after that initial clue will net you two points. If you guess wrong or ask for a hint, I can give you another clue in the same format that I think will be much more obviously leading to the answer than the answer than that is just one point. So we are being competitive. I do have a tiebreaker if we need it uh, to determine who will go first. Chris, pick a number from one to a million. Uh, 70,003. Joe? 70,002. Uh, Joe gets it because the number was one. So Joe <laughs> is going to go first. Fucking rap bastard. <laughs> Joe, your first clue. I think, I think these are all pretty gettable. I think this is going to be a high scoring game. Uh, Joe, your first clue. Freddie Quell sings Cocaine Blues. <laughs> Freddie Quell is uh, Joaquin Phoenix in, I believe, The Master. So this has got to be Walk the Line. Correct for two points. Nice. Uh, for Chris, Eddie Edwards sings Pinball Wizard. Well, um, Eddie Edwards is... I mean, Pinball Wizard is in Tommy and... Uh, uh that it but that's that's not really a biopic but in tommy elton john sings 
Oh, so is oh no! It it, it <laughs> pinball wizard is also in Rocket Man. This is Taron Edgerton. Yes, Eddie Edwards is Eddie because the Eagle. Eddie the Eagle. Yes. <laughs> I thought pinball wizard was going to be trickier. Nice job. Chris. I would have Two been points. fooled. I would have just said Tommy and and been wrong. Nice. All right, we are back to Joe Achman Ra sings. Who wants to live forever? Oh my God! Okay, who wants to live forever is a Queen song. Achman Ra, I'm imagining, is Rami Malek's character in Night at the Museum, so I'm going to say Bohemian Rhapsody. That is correct. All parts of the answer are there. Very good. Okay. Uh, next, Can I just say that I know that that is a Queen song from Catherine McPhee? Catherine McPhee on American oh, Idol. Same. On American Idol. Same. <laughs> Who wants to Not from Bohemian. No, I didn't know that from Bohemian. Rhapsody. Queen, a uh, Queen week on American Idol season five was so good. So because so we were like, "Fuck yeah!" What is Catherine McPhee gonna do? <laughs> yeah. And then she comes out with that, and we're like, "What?" Oh, yeah. All right, uh, let's go back to Chris. Chris Charlotte Cantalini sings "Fotos y Recuerdos." Okay, um. That is, this is Selena. It is Jennifer Lopez. Yes. Nice. Yeah. What's the movie where she plays Charlotte Cantalini? That is. Is that out of sight? It is not. That's Karen Cisco. Your your second clue, if you'd missed it, would have been Karen Cisco sings "Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb." But Charlotte <laughs> Cantalini <laughs> is her character from Monster in Law. Uh, Brutal yeah, that we've right. never gotten a movie where Karen Sisko sings Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb in character as Karen Sisko. Yes. That would have been great. <laughs> Carla Gugino yes, could also have sang yes. Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb and it would have worked for me. Yeah. All right. It is tied four to four. Everyone's got a perfect score so far. Next, right. back to Joe Moses sings Roadhouse Blues. All right. A lot of Moseses. Is Moses. Mosai. Um, Charlton Heston has been Moses. Um, uh, wait, who's Moses in Exodus Gods and Kings? It's Baal, right? Right. Sings what? Roadhouse Blues? Roadhouse Blues. Oh, you know what, though? But it's Val Kilmer who was in The Prince of Egypt, and it's The Doors. Okay. You got it. Yeah. Yes. Woo! <laughs> I'm glad that you're all being challenged, but getting them all. I feel like I calibrated <laughs> yes, the difficulty no, I, well. I appreciate it. It's, it's working. It's working. It's my the mind ideal gameplay. Yeah. All right, Chris. Sir Thomas Sharp sings "Why Don't You Love Me." Oh, this is an actual challenge because <laughs> Sir Thomas Sharp could be anyone, but I do. It is ringing a very vague, distant bell, like when you can hear a tornado siren at noon on a Wednesday. <laughs> Um, is it a lyric? Why don't you love me? That is not ringing a bell. There is a hint available. I would like the hint. F. Scott Fitzgerald sings Cold, Cold Heart. Oh, God, we've done this movie. <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's Tom Hiddleston and I Saw the Light. Yes. Uh, who's Sir Thomas Sharp? Anybody know? That is... Um, is it War Horse? It's not War Horse. A little bit later than Warhorse. Um, it's a movie that's not a horror movie, and people are constantly reminding it's each other. Crimson yeah, Peak. That it's Crimson oh Peak. yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, one point for Chris. Uh, back to Joe. We are now halfway through the game. It is a one point differential. Here we Excellent. Go. 
Winnie Mandela sings Take My Hand, Precious Lord. Winnie Mandela is Jennifer Hudson. Take My Hand, Precious Lord sounds plausibly Aretha Franklin, so I'm just going to guess respect. Yes, I had never heard of this Winnie Mandela movie. I thought that was going to be more difficult. Uh, I'm pretty uh, sure a TIFF premiere went to like Lifetime. Ah, Poor Jennifer Hudson. So many cursed movies in such a short career. Chris, CIA director Erica Sloan sings I Don't Want to Lose You. CIA. Okay, so it's a female biopic of someone who could conceivably lead the CIA. I Don't Want to Lose You is not familiar, but isn't this Angela Bassett? In? In Mission Impossible, so that would be uh, what's love got to do with it? That's the job. Yes, perfect. Yeah, nice. Why is that not a familiar? I mean, I suppose you're you're picking the yes. The 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 second clue would have been Stella Payne sings Proud Mary. (laughs) The second ones are all dead giveaways. (laughs) All right, back to Joe. Satsuki Kusakabe sings "You Drive Me Wild." Oh, fuck. Satsuki Kusakabe. Kusakabe sings You Drive Me Wild. Neither one of these things is ringing a bell, so I'm going to need a hint. Second clue is Squeaky From sings Cherry Bomb. Yes. Uh, Squeaky From is uh, Dakota Fanning, and Cherry Bomb is uh, from my beloved The Runaways. Yes, two points to no one point to Joe. One excuse point. me, one point to we Joe. We should maybe do The Runaways. We should. Michael, speaking of Michael Shannon movies that he didn't get nominated for, even though he's <laughs> fucking awesome. Uh, Sasuke Kusakabe is uh, Dakota Fanning's voice performance in the English dub of My Neighbor Totoro. Okay. <laughs> oh, she and, and we're going there. Voice sisters in that movie. We're Tim going Daly there. Is their hot dad. Okay. All right. We are over to Chris. Ruth Fowler sings, You Ain't Woman Enough to Take My Man. Oh. Um, hmm. I love this. <laughs> Ruth Fowler, I feel like I know. <laughs> Joe is nodding as though he knows exactly who Ruth Fowler is. Because this is, you. it's definitely a country music biopic. It's Sissy Spacek and Coal Miner's daughter. Ruth Fowler is in the bedroom. Yes, you got there. Yeah. We are all you got tied everything up at nine points in apiece. that question. <laughs> <laughs> all right, with nine points apiece, we are tied up into each player's last question. Oh my God. Joe. Yes. Levy Green sings it's a man's 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 world okay well i'm not sure what movie levy green is in but it's a man's 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 world is james brown and if i can remember the title of the movie where chadwick boseman played james brown i would be in good position it uh was called get on up you got it. Get on. All up. right. Woo. All right. And what is Levy Brown? Levy Green is his character in uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Tate Taylor's Get On Up, a movie yes. I watched for the first time this past week. It's not bad. Amazing. I really, I kind of <laughs> dug it. 
Nice. Uh, Did you watch it to make this game? Did you need to feel like you need to? to uh, no, I, I, uh, I watched it just I wanted to see a few more musical biopics before nice. discussing Love and Mercy. So I saw nice. that. Uh, and Man, what's the love dedication for the first time you put into this episode as a guest, Taylor. It's oh. uh, humbling. All right, Chris, you need a two point answer to tie it up. The pressure. Hamlet sings Look for the Silver Lining. So, cinematic Hamlets. You got Laurence Olivier. You got um, Ethan Hawke. You've got Kenneth Branagh. You've got <laughs> sort of Steve Coogan. Um, uh, is there another Hamlet that I'm maybe not thinking of? Ethan Hawke... See, Born to be Blue kind of doesn't count, though I have called that Ethan Hawke's best performance at one point in time. Uh, Has Ethan Hawke done another musical biopic? That seems feasible. Branagh, I don't think, has. So it's got to be someone else. What Hamlet am I forgetting? I can't go for I can't I can't You can't go for Joe the hint cuz you won't this. win. Yeah. I know. You got to go for it. What's the song title again? Look for the silver lining. Look for the silver lining from someone who has played Hamlet. And hopefully Oh no, it's uh there's Denzel Washington. No, that's Macbeth. <laughs> um I know there's another Hamlet that I'm forgetting. Maybe yeah. I'm just mixing up Macbeths. I'm gonna see. The thing is, if I even get this, even if I ask for the second clue, mm-hmm. I lost, and the game is over. So you can throw in a guess. Perhaps <sighs> something you've mentioned. Yeah, I was gonna say Born perhaps you're blue. overcomplicating. Yeah, why? Why? Blue to be blue is the answer I came up with. Why do you think that doesn't count? Well, because it, well, I guess he does sing in the movie too. Born to be Blue. It doesn't is, have to be a musical. Not a it's just a biopic. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, sure, 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 yeah. sure. Like, Hawk himself. Well, a lot of these people don't sing themselves. It's more just like their character does it. Right, okay. right, right. Ethan Hawk in that movie, man. Oh, I'd love Born wow. to be Blue. I was going to I would have screwed that up because I would have uh, said without realizing, not without realizing, without mm-hmm. uh, thinking, I would have just said Juliet Naked because that was the first thing I could think <laughs> oh, of with Ethan yeah, Hawke singing, but that's, that's not a biopic because it's, yeah, it's a fictional biopic. Yeah. Good, right. movie. We, Good movie. Fellas, we have arrived in a tie. So ah. the first person I hear shout out the correct answer will be declared the winner. Okay. Your clue is, I only have one clue. There's no hint on this one. Okay. Quasimodo composes Die Zauberflute. Amadeus. Um, yeah. no. <laughs> Joe beat you to Amadeus. Tom Hulse, voice of nice. Quasimodo. Well done nice. to Joe, but very, very close for Chris. Well uh, done to Chris as well. Fun, uh, fun, fun, fantastic game, Taylor. Yes, that was wonderful. Uh, all right. What else do we okay, want to before... say about love? We haven't talked about Cusack. and mercy. That's how Goldie Hawn would say this: love <laughs> and, mercy. and mercy and mercy. Uh, we haven't talked John about Cusack. Cusack it sounds like somebody. Who earlier was maybe hinting at they thought he was bad in this movie? I I think he's really. I've yeah, heard I people too. say that he's like, if not bad, that like 
markedly inferior to Dano is what I feel like the, the party line on this movie was. But they have such different tasks. They and do. They're playing such different mm-hmm. versions of Brian Wilson. I think Cusack is also just not an actor people really love. Yeah, people are people are uh, predisposed, myself included, to be like, well, uh, Cuckoo Bird, uh, John Cusack. Mm-hmm. Was this the same uh, year? Is this the same year as Chirac? Chirac. Yep, okay. I was about to bring that up. Right. <laughs> okay. And uh, his recent tweet of like, I know someone who got paid one-seventh of... John Cusack the, playing Dumois for a, for a day. And we're like, your sister, you know someone who you're related to? John Cusack strike tweeting has been tremendous because he also went off on somebody and like called them, wait, oh, oh God, Fran Hoffner and I were texting about this, where he called them like a mental oyster or something like that. It's just like, was like insulting this person in the most fantastic level like you you absolute imbecile you moronic like amoeba it's so funny (laughs) um oh wait i can probably just find it because i almost certainly texted it to france so hold on a second it's worth waiting for because uh (laughs) um yeah i i I like that it's a a very different performance than what dano is doing I, i it helps but but at the same time there is this gentleness to both of them. I don't normally associate John Cusack with gentleness, even when he is doing something like say anything, there is a little yeah. bit of a, like a, a machismo to that, you know, quote, nice guy in Lloyd Dobler, say what you want about Lloyd Dobler. That's obviously debates to be had, but I really do love the, the, the kind of just non, like he's non-threatening in a way that I rarely see John Cusack be in this movie. That is true. Um, I will find this tweet. And I think I would also say it's not easy in the circumstances that this relationship is. Obviously, these are people who did fall in love in their circumstances, but I think portraying that in a movie and having chemistry, making the audience root for this uh, romance, I don't think that's easy. And I do think he does have really good chemistry with Elizabeth Banks in this mm-hmm. movie. Okay, I found the tweet. It was in response to somebody being like Rich American actors, you know, want more money in the strike. Yeah, I got it. You know, dumps it. So Cusack quote tweets, and I'm going to censor this for tender ears for at least one word, uh, but not the other one. So maybe earmuff time. Uh, <laughs> you dumb, he goes, you dumb, stupid C word. Uh, you absolute fool. Uh, uh, then he's like, dumb socialism is FDR, the New Deal. Ever heard of it? You moronic ghoul. You mental oyster. You fucking stooge. Uh, we did band together for the GI Bill, the interstate, whatever, for workers' rights, clean water. Uh, every right you have, you dumb fucking golem. <laughs> <laughs> that wow. is like, that you know, good. that is the opening act for Tiffany Pollard talking about Gemma Oh, Collins. 100%. Like, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's definitely given his Chirac energy on that tweet. Yes, yes, <laughs> big time. Uh, John Cusack, another uh, never been nominated uh, yeah. uh, for an Oscar person. Some people it's say never going to happen. At this point, certainly not. Not popular. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, what else? What else? It could have been an original song nominee. It showed up at the Globes and Critics' Choice. Oh, this is, of course, the, the second song played over the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, like, this is a horrible original song year. Like, 
to the extent that I think a lot of people are like, yeah, the obvious winner is The Weeknd for Fifty oh, yeah. Shades of Grey for like a passable song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we Oscar. thought Gaga would say, win. Ellie Goulding for... misses at Oscar for Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes. Right, right, yes, right, yes, right, yes. right, right. Yeah. One day, Ellie Goulding, one day. Um, what were we talking about best song literally yesterday, Chris? Oh, the two songs from for Barbie. Barbie. Right. Oh, yeah. No, that was this morning. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It was this morning. Um, yeah. Are there not I, three? Well, there's like a I guess million. There's, but yes, we were I talking like about three chance. legitimate Barbie I think the Ken song is but... going to get nominated. Hmm. I would I would be happy if both Dua's, Dua Lipa's song and Lizzo's song were yeah, also Yeah, the Lizzo nominated. song is the one I would love to I think. don't love the is... Barbie Girl remix, Nicki no. Minaj, I Spice. That's not my fave. But No, I don't think that that would... I think I don't it think it would, would qualify. Anyway. Dua Lipa and yeah. the Ken and song. The... What I do think they should do because good luck getting Ryan Gosling to agree to do that on live television. I think, and I can say this because we're far enough removed. I'm not spoiling the joke for anybody. Probably at this point, a month after the movies come out, <laughs> I think the person they should have perform the Ken song on the Oscar ceremony Rob is Thomas, Rob Thomas. Yes, Thomas. <laughs> yes, <laughs> please, please. Uh. God. The, I want Ryan Gosling to do it. I think he could do it. I think he would do it. I think he's adventurous. Ryan Gosling, I said this in my letterbox review. Ryan Gosling has the um for me has the he's such a weirdo, he must protect him at all costs energy that people seem to be affording to Tom Cruise right now where everybody's like Tom Cruise can do whatever insane things he, thing he wants and I'll go show up for it and I'm like that's what I'm bringing to Ryan Gosling for the but rest I think of Ryan Gosling career. has more self-awareness about his weirdo stuff than Tom Cruise does. Yes, he so that's does. why I feel like yes, he does. I don't know. I like them both. Well, yeah, because people in interviews can ask Ryan Gosling about the Hey Girl thing, mm-hmm. but you can't ask Tom Cruise about anything. Yeah. Like <laughs> You certainly can't wow. bring up the time that that person squirted a squirt gun mic in his face <laughs> in 2005 without Roger Avery pitching a fit on Twitter about it, for God's sake. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, all right, should we move into the IMDb game? Sure. Yeah, would you like to explain what the IMDb game is? Yeah, I would. Uh, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with the name of an actor or actress, and we try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television shows or voice-only performances or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. All right, Taylor, as our guest, you get not only the choice of giving or guessing first, but who you are going to be giving or guessing from slash to. I will guess first uh, to make sure that my guessing is as far away from the end of the episode as possible so people don't remember (laughs) it. Uh, And I will have Chris choose for me, and then I will give to Joe. Okay. Okay. So, for you, I have chosen somebody who was in this multitude of uh, supporting actor bananas extravaganza in this year. I chose for you the indie spirit and SAG winner, who we have never done before, Mr. Idris Elba. Elba. Okay. Shockingly, no voice performance. No No Jungle Book, no Zootopia. Yeah, the moment of like, can we have Idris Elba play a human being 
slash can we also see yes. him? Yes, because it was, it was Jungle Book, Zootopia, and Star Trek Beyond all the same summer. Right. <laughs> all right, Idris Elba, no television either. No, no television hijack. Either. And no, what is it, Luther? Luther. Right. Or his uh, yeah. Netflix DJ show. Uh, all right, God. movies, movies. Uh, see, Netflix, see, I, immediately I want to say, well, it's probably Beasts of No Nation because of those awards, but Netflix movies tend to not show up on these things. So I'm going to put a pin in Beasts of No Nation, and I'm instead going to guess... I'm blanking. I can think of a bunch of things where he's supporting, but I'm trying to think of some like big lead performances. He's more of a supporting guy most of the time. Uh, you know, I'll just say Beast of No Nation. I'm going for it. Correct, okay. Beast of No Nation. Uh, then I now does Star Trek Beyond pop in there? It's not a voice only performance. That's a big movie. But instead, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it and say Prometheus. Incorrect. Uh, no shoot. Prometheus, okay. though. That's a good guess. Uh, I will say Molly's Game. Also uh, incorrect, unfortunately. Dang. Molly's Game should kind of be mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Like he's in a huge yeah. role in Molly's Game. He gets uh, the big years. Then, if we judge <laughs> IMDb Game by number of words said in a yeah. movie, then like he would definitely <laughs> be there. <laughs> doesn't he also do a? Doesn't he do an American dialect in Molly's yeah, Game? Such as he it does. is. Mm-hmm. He, he, yeah, he yeah, makes exactly. his best so, effort he, at it. He attempts. Um, your years, Taylor, are 2010, 2013, and 2017. Wow. Okay. 2010. Um, oof. I'm usually... 2010 has definitely shown up in the IMDb game before, okay. and I think we have regularly been like, it's not this movie, but it looks like it's this movie. Oh. So I will give you that hint. This isn't Smoke and Aces, but you might think it's Smoke and Aces. Oh, oh. yeah, it's, yeah. I, I I remember this happening, but I can't remember what it is. Um, 2013 is not August Osage County, even though that is 2013. <laughs> um, Wait, is he in August Osage County? <laughs> I mean, if he were, I assume it would be on his IMDb <laughs> game. It's on everybody's. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, 2010 is not blank, but blank. Uh, it's not Smoke and Aces, but it... It has that energy. Yeah. And yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, it's like the same, like, I imagine, like, same poster design and color scheme. As it's Smoke not Biker Aces. Boys. It's not Smoke and Aces. It's not... Um, there's a bunch of movies that feel like it has this similar vibe. Um, yeah. And I am weirdly blanking. I'm going to need... I believe it showed up for Zoe Saldana's. Oh, oh, the the losers, the losers, the losers. The movie we have all seen in this lifetime, yes, the losers. Not. Is the losers just on like Spike TV all the time? Does Spike mm-hmm. TV even still exist? If it does, it I only think, plays isn't the Spike losers. TV it's like MTV now with Paramount ridiculousness. Does, isn't that what that has now turned into? Like, isn't, to what? To Paramount Network? Spike I think. TV, like, isn't that just the late, the an earlier evolution of that? It would explain why <laughs> Yellowstone's um, Yellowstone's on Yellowstone's there. Yeah. on there. <laughs> the losers right, cast, um, though, it's Idris Elba, Zoe Saldana, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Chris Evans, yeah, I, I Columbus Short, Evans Jason Patrick, Holt McElhaney. Like, it's... Does it have hottest Ken Scott Evans? Uh, not that I see. You win hottest Ken Scott Evans. Um, you know what? I appreciate it. He's a soap guy. Listen, so. much to my surprise, hottest Ken Scott, Scott Evans. Evans iconic One Life to Live gay Scott Evans. I'll, I'm happy with it. <sighs> uh, All right. 2017, so and it's and, not Molly's Game. Oh, It is not. 
Is one of these Mandela Long Walk to Freedom? It is not. Also surprising. I felt very good about that guess. This Uh, is a genre movie that I don't know if it's necessarily seen as a flop, but a disappointment. Um, hmm. It is from a director who has since won a, uh, has won Best Picture and Best Director. You guessed Prometheus. It has very Prometheus vibes. His character, I feel like, has very his character in Prometheus vibes. Okay. Uh, well, he's won Best Picture and Best Director. It's not in Inyari 2. It's no. not... Is it a Del Toro? No. Yes. Oh, it is. Oh. What? Oh, Pacific Rim, of course. Yes. Pacific I think Rim. Pacific Rim gets so, the like, lumped into, like, Transformers and all of that mm, that people sure. forget that that's a Del Toro. Yeah. I didn't... I didn't care for it. If it's not a Del Toro, I think it's not as enjoyable as I think it is. Sure. I I remember liking it. But again, that was during the period where it was a summer during the period where I'm a sleepaway camp counselor and you get three days off per summer and you're in the north woods of Minnesota and just being able to go see a movie at all is great. Right. So you like everything. (laughs) Yeah, I was like really high on White House Down that summer. <laughs> <laughs> White House Down, I did enjoy. I will say. Um, and then 2017, that is not a franchise that people definitely forget. Idris Elba is in, is in. which is like it makes total sense that they would. Oh, is it Thor Ragnarok? Sure is it Ragnarok. Is. Yeah, dang. It is. We are known for for in... that guy. <laughs> He's in yes. Ragnarok the most of the Marvel movies that he's huh. in. That's true. Considering he the fact kind of that has he his is... own little story arc in that one. He's like off yeah. doing stuff. Considering the fact that he's actually most known for The Wire and Luther at this point, like yeah, it is I, an odd I was for. shocked that there was no TV. That's when I knew yeah. I was in for a, a barn But murder. that that's the IMDb game for you. Yeah. Like his, TV is His known for shunting. should be like The Wire uh, Molly's game, Beasts of No Nation, and constantly being asked if he's going to be James Bond. Be James Bond. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. True. True, true, true. All right. So All I guess right. we're going to go backwards. So Joe, give to me, and then Taylor is going to give to you. Okay. okay. All right. Christopher, you mentioned, uh, we talked about uh, the Pitch Perfect movies, uh, Elizabeth Banks directing Pitch Perfect 2. I talked about how uh, this actress is dating the Bills quarterback and is thus fam to me. And so I will now ask you for her, known for Miss Haley Steinfeld. No television. Ah, uh, so no Dickinson, the great Dickinson. No Dickinson. Um, True Grit. Yep. Edge of 17. Yep. Pitch Perfect 2. Nope. Okay. Um, Bumblebee. Yep. No one has ever said the title Bumblebee with as much confidence. I love Haley Steinfeld so much. Mm-hmm. Um, what was what was her like direct True Grit follow up? Ooh, I think I know. I haven't looked it up, but I, I have a I have a good guess because I think this is it. But I don't know what it is, or it would it would make sense that this would be it. Um, though I mean, this is gonna make me stick up for Pitch Perfect two if Bumblebee is there and Pitch Perfect two isn't because <laughs> please, um, 
Miss Steinfeld. What is it? Pitch Perfect three. It's Pitch Perfect three. Wow. Yes. <laughs> so I you was... got it like three and a half out of four. Like yeah, you, you, yeah, you yeah, came yeah. real close. Her her follow up to is it to, that Romeo and Juliet that she was in? Well, it's sort of three movies in around the right. same time. It's Romeo and Juliet Begin Again. Uh, where she plays Ruffalo's daughter, and then Ender's right. Game. Oh, which was everyone. like the big one. Yeah, everyone's bad in Ender's Game. That's the problem with Ender's Game. Um, well done on Haley Steinfeld. You yeah, are you you, was... you backed up your assertion that you are a Haley Steinfeld super fan. Yes. So very good. I am a Haley Steinfeld. <laughs> yes. All right. All right, Taylor. What Joe, do you have for uh, me? Someone from Love and Mercy who I think is great in the movie who we didn't talk about a whole lot is Bill Camp. Oh, yes. uh, that's a great. The great Bill Camp, who oh I recently gosh, learned Bill is Camp. in Sound of Freedom, uh, the freaking QAnon Jim Caviezel movie. I and I got know. really sad. And for Mira Bill Sorvino. Camp. It's yeah. a bummer. It's a bummer. No. But I have not chosen Bill Camp. I have chosen the woman who is married to Bill Camp, yes. Ms. Elizabeth Marvel. Elizabeth Marvel. Joe, Elizabeth Marvel. No television. No television, no voice work. She's so good in Mrs. Davis. If you guys haven't, uh, I still have Mrs. to catch Davis up out Mrs. there. Davis. Ah, uh, she's so good. Okay, Elizabeth Marvel. No television. Meyerowitz stories. No, and that is why uh. I was loath <laughs> to guess Beasts of No Nation because I was like, uh. if it's, if Meyerowitz isn't for Marvel, yeah. there's no way. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, one strike. Taylor, I'm so glad you're doing this to Joe. He deserves it so much. <laughs> God, fuck off. Um, all right, Elizabeth Marvel. The problem is all the things... Well, you know what? I honestly think True Grit is going to be on hers as well. Is that your guess? Yes. It is. Double True yeah. Grits today. Both playing the same character. Yes. Wow. Um, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> um, oh, what does she say, too? She says this one really devastating line where she's like... Um, like move your hat trash or something like that. Like she calls somebody trash. Um, all right. Elizabeth Marvel, Elizabeth Marvel. Oh, Lincoln. Lincoln is correct. Ooh. <laughs> and Bill Camp play a married couple. That's the thing is all that you're going to get for Elizabeth Marvel. If it's movies is going to be stuff like that is she's just got small roles where she like, <laughs> devastates she's um, credited as mrs jolly sure my drag name. well if if that's gonna work that i am gonna guess um one of my favorite elizabeth marvel performances which is the born legacy incorrect you have Damn. two wrong guesses she and jeremy renner beat the shit out of each other in the born <laughs> legacy it's amazing she's the only good thing about that movie yeah oh she's so good what a great scene um your right. years are 2017, and what IMDb says is 2019, but I think it was a festival 2019 and a pandemic VOD 2020. Really Correct. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, I will say the pandemic 2020 movie is one that I was like, this is a good movie. You should watch this. Yeah, it was a really I, good performance. And I you watched were like, it on uh, Halloween this no. past year. <laughs> Oh, and I didn't like it? No, I think you were like, I am not watching this during the pandemic. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I, I can see that. Because I was going to guess that Betty Gilpin, I'm, I've got Betty Gilpin on the brain, the Betty Gilpin movie that I wanted to like and didn't. Um, oh, I've never seen that. I would do one. You know what I'm talking about? The one where she's... The Hunt. The, the Hunt, yes. This well, is much like smaller that. than that. Yes. Much smaller than The Hunt. Okay. Um, and it's got bad pandemic vibes. Like... 
it would remind me of politics or it would remind me of dying of a disease. It's no, neither. Just more, more just like, like, hey, weird stuff's stress? going on with my body. Okay. All right. Fuck. If it helps you the scale of it, this is an IFC movie. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um but it's not like she dies tomorrow, a stressful pandemic movie yeah, that it is, I did see. It's similar vibes. levels of like dread as she dies okay. tomorrow. It's not the one where Haley Bennett eats pin cush- or, uh, p- uh, push pins. Is it? What's it called? <laughs> what Swallow. is it called? Swallow. Swallow. Yes. I yeah. really like Swallow. <laughs> is she the woman at the end of Swallow? I believe she's, she's the, the husband's mom. mom. Oh, yeah. she's the right, right. There's somebody else who's the who's the woman towards the end. Yeah, yeah I like Swallow. Haley Bennett fucking rules in Swallow. Yeah, it's stressful as fuck, but yes. What a weird thing to come up on someone's IMDb. Okay, 2017. <laughs> Is 2017 like a big movie that she's got a small role in? <sighs> not exactly. It's not a big movie. It's not a big movie. Okay. This it's is a, definitely a, a movie we receive screeners for mm-hmm. <laughs> for some reason. It's it's probably this director's least remembered movie. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Super um, helpful hint, I know. Speaking no, well, of hottest Ken Scott Evans. <laughs> is in this movie? No. <laughs> but Chris Evans is. Yeah. Twenty seventeen, director's least remembered movie, Chris Evans. Is it the one where he and Jenny Slate started dating? Yes. What was that called? <laughs> Fuck. He's got the daughter. Um, oh, God. What is it called? It's called. It's a past participle. One word title. <laughs> <laughs> it's a past participle. Wait, past participle is. Uh. uh Something with an ED at the end, right? Yes. Okay. Um, um, it's not like devoted, but it's like something about like, what a good dad. It's um, <laughs> what a good dadded. Or what a what special a good daughter. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, gifted. <laughs> gifted is gifted. correct. Gifted. <laughs> God. That well, would have taken me a year and a day. Thank you, Chris, for that. <laughs> um, I don't remember what role she played. Who directed that one? Mark Webb. It's a Mark Webb. Right. Right. That's a tough one, uh, Taylor. And I respect you for bringing such a tough one there and thinking I wouldn't retaliate for you. That's why you wanted to go first. Yeah. Um, Well done. I had also had as a backup Timothy Oliphant, uh, but uh, that was somehow harder than Elizabeth Mark. Oh, God. I feel like (laughs) we've had Timothy Oliphant. And Timothy Oliphant is like stupid difficult. Yeah. Like like a perfect getaway is on there, there. right? No. Uh, A perfect getaway fucking rules. Oh, Speaking yeah, of my flowered uh, beach shirt, that's a very thematically <laughs> okay. appropriate to a perfect Joe getaway. Joe Reed Cannon, A Perfect Getaway. <laughs> Love that movie. Um, we'll find an excuse to watch it. There's no way we could watch it for this podcast, but I'll, I'll My excuse to, to watch, watch it, it was recent. Remember, it, in the past like year, I had a cabin weekend, and of the like four barely functioning DVDs that were in the cabin, that feels it right. was like Despicable Me <laughs> and like Toy Story and a perfect getaway. <laughs> that I was your joke. that was your excuse. You should have watched it. I didn't watch it, Chris. You disappoint me. All right, uh, you know who didn't disappoint me it was Taylor Cole. In this episode. Never I does. Just, 
incapable of disappointing. This was so, so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, on. my God. Thank you. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we, of course, love the theme music. And uh, uh, tell the, the people where to listen to you because you have a rad podcast. Also Thank you. Really yes. Love. You can hear me uh, three weeks per month, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, asking people silly pop culture trivia questions on the great American pop culture quiz show. Uh, it is super fun to do. Uh, we call for all sorts of very weird formats for music, movie, television, trivia. Uh, come listen to us. The Great American Pop Culture Quiz Show. Hurrah. And you can also listen to more of Taylor's work on our Patreon. Yeah. Uh, come play with us. The music Taylor's version. Uh, <laughs> yes. Patreon.com slash this had Oscar Buzz. You can listen to our what are we calling it? Are we calling it an after show, an after hours show? We're calling it Turbulent Brilliance. That's all you need to know. Uh, right. Come sign up on <laughs> Patreon. $5 a month. Uh, we appreciate your support. This is our gift to you, listeners. And in turn, you give us a little small monthly gift to us. Uh, Patreon.com slash this had Oscar Buzz. And also, we will be plugging that on our Twitter, our Instagram, and our Tumblr. That is our episode. If you want, not threads, huh? no threads, never threads. No, no, we're not <laughs> going to be on threads uh, because no one is going to be on threads. Because because I remember the 1980s. If you remember the 1980s, you have no business being on threads. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, if you want more, of this had Oscar Buzz. You can check check us out on Tumblr at this had You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore Buzz and on Instagram at this had Oscar Buzz. We will be plugging the Patreon on all of those locations. Taylor. Uh, Tell our lovely listeners where they can find more of you if you wish to be found. Uh, sure. I'm on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd at Taylor's Cole. And Joseph, where can they find you? Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And I am on Twitter and Letterboxd at Crispy File. That is F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get those podcasts. Five Star Review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So not only are love and mercy what you need tonight, you need to give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. There's a tale oh. about Christmas that you've all been told, and a real famous cat all dressed up in red, and he spends the whole year working out in his sled. It's the losing Hello to the Garys, Taylor Cole, the guest on this episode, coming back in to take two extra things. Thank you to Chris and Joe for dropping in this extra bit of audio with things that I forgot and only realized like a week later. Number one, uh, with regards to my performance on the IMDb game and noting that 2016 was the year that Idris Elba had the sort of voice or faceless performances in Zootopia and The Jungle Book and Star Trek Beyond, I forgot to mention Finding Dory, a movie that is not good, uh, so I'm glad I forgot it, but he is also a voice as a sea lion in Finding Dory that same year, 2016. Second of all, when I mentioned the great American pop culture quiz show being a thing you can listen to and hear more games like the one you heard on this episode, I forgot to mention that the place you should start is our Oscar special from March 2022 because that episode features da -da 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 -da, Joe Reed and Chris File. They were wonderful enough to come on the show show with Katie Rich from your Thanksgiving episodes here on this 
Disc had Oscar buzz. So scroll back to early March of 2022 and check out that Oscar special. is a great first place to start for the great American pop culture quiz show. Thanks so much.